Honey. <laughs> Douglas is going away to camp. So? So, so who's going to program the VCR? Panasonic understands, so this VCR is as simple to program as drawing a line. This Panasonic shows you what to do on screen. You can even use a phone to program this VCR. My parents don't need me anymore. They got a Panasonic VCR too, huh? If it's Panasonic, it's easy to program. Yeah, this was a this was a crazy Saturday night. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is last on our last show. Yeah, flashback. <laughs> we uh, we did an ensemble piece. Oh, huge! We, we did. We had a, we had the phone book, the Hollywood phone book. We did Tombstone. Yeah, by George Pika's Mottos, and uh, and this one is also an ensemble piece in a very different way. Yes, but it's it, yeah, and it's it's it became like a. Uh, like a staple of a generation. Well, we talked a lot about the importance of Tombstone for the two of us. Yeah. And I would say that this movie, in in some ways, is as important to me as Tombstone is. Which is interesting. In a different, uh, yeah. In a, in a different way. It's it's almost like I want to challenge those thoughts and, and, <laughs> and like like almost like I'm a psychiatrist and ascertain why because it's 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 such a. Uh, I hadn't seen the movie all the way through, and I think it's one of these things yeah, I think, where... I think that's what's... Just, you know, we, we've now... The other thing is, there, <laughs> I, there are two Johns I've, that are consistent with Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I've been, I've, been, I've been a boy in a bubble for certain things. There's been... Uh, John Carpenter yeah. is a recurring John yeah. in the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And now John Hughes is yeah. a recurring John. We, we did... Uh, three, maybe? That This might be the third... Dutch? Did he have anything to do with Dutch? He wrote Dutch, I think. And then he did Planes Trains. And he did Planes Trains, and now we're doing The Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club. Which is maybe his most, yeah, well, at least one of his most famous or, it was his, revered it, movies. Was this his directorial debut, or no? This 16- was, they wanted, he was expecting to this this to be his directorial debut because it's a low, it can be done on a low budget, it's all in one location. It's a very small movie. It's very much but, like a play. But 16 Candles, the studio ended up wanting that to be come first and so that became his directorial debut and he shot that right before that yeah this. and on 16 candles is when he kind of pitched yeah to, to, to molly ringwald and, and anthony michael hall like, yeah i'm doing this other movie would you guys be in it yeah which is always a good idea i remember when we were in film school and you were doing your junior film you got an ensemble <laughs> of actors and we liked them so much i was like listen next year i'm doing my senior film will you guys be in it you know yeah, yeah. it's always good to have well, you know, people. you find people that you you have a good rapport with, and you know, sometimes there's just good chemistry. Yeah, yeah. That you know, artistically and personally or professionally, and you know, it ends up working out. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, that's Jay Blake. I'm Jay Blake. Uh, that's Dion. But you Baya. can call me Blake. You can call me Blake. <laughs> Blake. <laughs> Jay Blake. And I'm Dion Baya. Uh, we're here yet again on a late Saturday night. It's not as late as it has been. We've had some real doozies with storms and. <laughs> And yeah. just uh, workloads and, uh, geez, Tombstone was like 8 or 9 in the morning. My parents were upstairs making breakfast. <laughs> you know, creaking. Coffee was percolating. Yeah, yeah cre- you know, stuff's going on. The floorboards are creaking. Juicer was going. Juicer's Darn. going. My parents got a juicer. They had the popcorn machine going. <laughs> I 
on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning popcorn. <laughs> yeah, Sunday. Well, who doesn't have Sunday morning popcorn? <laughs> uh, so, but this one is we're, we're we're back to our kind of like you know late night, not late, late, late night. You know, <laughs> not early morning, not early not morning, early, not early Sunday morning. Yeah, sleepover. yeah, before we're on our way to church. Um, I had never seen this uh, because it was one of those things where growing up, you know, I was into a lot of like action movies or whatever, like like anybody is, and then. These movies used to be played to death on yeah. a weekend or during the day. This were always on this and the, the whole like uh, you know uh, showcase of uh, of John Hughes. His whole catalog was always on TV, so that kind of pushed me away from it. Like uh, you know, I'll eventually get to them, and people yeah, love yeah. them, and that's why sometimes I haven't seen certain movies because when people pitch it to me that you have to see this, you have to see this, like I'll get around to it when I can, and then like you know, and then it ends up getting ruined for me. I'm like. Now am I really going to go see it? So I'd seen this all broken up, and I knew scenes very well, but I couldn't tell you that I've actually sat down and watched it from, you know, beginning to end, which I found quite fascinating. And it's weird because now I think we brought up in the plane, trains, and automobiles, like, you know, I'm growing uh, my interest and respect for John Hughes because it's amazing what he was able to accomplish. And, you know, this script, they're saying he wrote this in two days, which is insane and he wrote like weird science in like a weekend or something like yeah, that too. you know it and it's very uh, prolific it, yeah i'm just saying you know how you think how prolific he is where i mean i'm uh, you know he i guess you can pigeonhole him in some sort of genre but it's amazing to think that this guy is able to just you know lack of a better word just shit out these and they're not crappy scripts it's not like he's just giving you like uh freaking genre b genre material that you're making like a horror movie or whatever he's actually putting out like a-list or stuff that's actually quite thought-provoking too it's not just like yeah. uh you know mcguffin where somebody has a suitcase and uh, you know the guy's got us in it's a time frame it's like he's actually doing like you know this the breakfast club really can be in the pantheon of the uh adolescent movies like a rebel without a cause or yeah, like yeah. a blackboard well, jungle the, that's or why the graduate that's one of the things i love about this movie is that like there are certain movies that like on their surface i think you have an idea of them being and it happens a lot with, like, teen movies. You have an idea of it being, like, this stupid teen comedy or yeah. something like that. But then you, every once in a while you get a movie that, when you watch it, you're like, I don't know if it's marketed incorrectly. I mean, here, this one came out, I'm, I think we're a little too young. I, we're a little too... We were a little too young for us to now remember how it was really marketed yeah. when it came out. But a movie like, say, uh, The Girl Next Door, which came out in the 2000s, which was totally marketed as like this teen sex comedy. Yeah. And it ends up being so much more than that. Is that the one with the porn stars living next door? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never seen that one too. It's, a, it's, that. it's really great. It's yeah. kind of like that generation's uh, all the right – no, not all the right movies. What's the one with the – the right stuff where they go to <laughs> no it is tom cruise oh uh risky business okay. it's kind of like risky business which again is like another movie where it you kind of have this idea of it being this certain kind of movie and it ends up being so much like deeper and more mature and i think breakfast club is one of the things i love about this movie it's is a, that it is like it has some it does have some comedy but at its core it's like this very like touching it could be like studied. coming of age yeah it's play, really. Like, the fact that nobody's ever done it as a play well, they, is kind of they amazing. say that the people afterward went to John Hughes and asked him to write it as a play so it can perform. So I wonder if he did write it in some sort of play form, and then maybe there's high schools that take scenes, and you can maybe do a yeah. – like, in class, you do a scene from it or whatever. Yeah. But it's certainly so much like this year The Hateful Eight came out. You know, it's like one of these things where, okay, you know, for lack of a better word, you could keep that in one room, this thing too. Where so you can keep this just wherever, and you don't really have to have them leave – 
the set. Or yeah. if they do, they you know you don't have to change sets. You can just have it be this one set. And it's yeah. and it's beautiful that it is it is um it is not it's not just um epidural where you, there is so much more in it, and it doesn't become just a sex comedy or a shitty eighties comedy. Yeah, you know yeah. there is so much more going on in it, and it really touches on serious issues children have i mean each one of these characters are so believable yeah. and then when you get to these scenes where they where they're bonding and they have these monologues of who they are or why they're there it's just almost more like wow there's so much more level there and there's and it it's, makes them so much more realistic they're not just like um you know uh just showing off for the camera and like you know just overacting it's like it's these are actual uh, characteristics these characters could have, and then you're yeah. hiding something more serious or uh, a frailty underneath, which I found fascinating. Well, I think it, you know this movie comes out in 1985, and I think 84, 16 Candles, and then he does Weird Science, which is definitely more of like a goofy yeah. sex comedy thing. But and then, then he Ferris wrote, Bueller's shot back he, to back with he Ferris Bueller after this, which again is also very poignant in in a lot of ways, and. Uh, on top of the comedy. And then, you know, he writes Pretty in Pink. But this starts happening in the mid-80s into the late 80s. And before that, like, teen comedies were like Porky's and stuff. And there's nothing... Yeah, of the 80s, And it's not to, like, take anything away from a movie like Porky's. Uh, But you know what? Even, like, Fast Times has a lot of, like, serious things going on. It's just something about, like, in the 80s, this becomes... a Because, yeah, you're right. Because in the 60s, you had teen comedies were kind of like like blanket beach bingo where it was just like yeah, yeah. it but was you a did vehicle have, like, rebel without a cause yeah but you wouldn't call that a comedy though it'd yeah, be like yeah. thought provoking it's almost like what's wrong with our society's youth blackboard yeah, jungle yeah. or or even the graduate you know and i think in the 60s you have these really these movies where it's like the kids going to the beach like the beach boys generation yeah, and then and you it's have a vehicle. like the Kurt russell yeah and you have like <laughs> you the know, vehicle computer wore t- tennis shoes yeah and, and, and stuff like that and it's goofy. either like a vehicle to get like you know ricky nelson out there or some sort of song you know yeah. and it's some shitty plot uh, or it's like you're saying like a disney movie like you know herbie the love bug or parent trap or or and then you get in the 70s you do get then it's like um you know we're talking about rebel without a cause you get the graduate which is very not so much a comedy but it's very much like what's what's my life gonna be what's happening yeah. now well, change of the life 60s i think graduate. yeah at the end of that decade but and yeah, then towards the end of like that turnaround you know like we're, there's some bleed over of what's gonna happen it's yeah. kind of a prelude and then there's certainly a lot of stuff in the 70s then when you hit the 80s it is kind of like it becomes more introspective where it's you have these these yeah well you get a lot of the sex comedy stuff like revenge of the nerds and yeah you know, porkies and you get a lot of that but then, <laughs> but then you get like these other things and i think hughes's he got praised with things like this as being like a more, I, I don't know if it's accurate, but uh, like, I think he got praised for being like a more accurate representation of what being like an upper class teen in high school is. Yeah, you know, an upper middle class teen who the problems of dealing with authority or your parents or whatever, and it, it becomes less about sex. Although you know, this is you know the the, the idea of like virginity in yeah. this is like. It, it plays throughout this whole thing as like the, being this negative thing, which is like it's so weird when you look back at high school as it being like a. Such, well, I, mean, a I, underst- thing. I understand it's, like it's a big thing, verse. but I think like the fact that it is such a big thing in this movie is, you know, it is true. Yeah, it's like, very, for yeah. some reason when you're like sixteen, seventeen, yeah, you don't want to, 
well, because it's almost like looked at as a negativism. It's almost yeah, like, yeah. you know, you still play with toys. It's like, what do you mean you've not grown up and you've not and yeah. kissed a girl? You've gotten with a girl. You've, you know, I don't know, got the second or third base yeah. with a girl. You haven't, you're still a virgin. So it's, in a way, sex is still but a it's part not, of this movie. It's but not it, a glamorization. It's very less, you yeah. know, it's, it's not, not like about, an animal house. Yeah, or, they're not or, trying to get to a whorehouse. Yeah, they're not, or they're, they're not trying drilling to, like holes to see <laughs> the girl's locker room, which you, I mean, very much... This movie, I could see them, and there's not, there's not like not taking anything away from no, those not kinds at all. of movies. And I can certainly see in some sort of a weird sequel, like like Judd Nelson and Emilio are hanging out and they're doing <laughs> that now, like you know, to like you know, to Danger Zone, you know, well <laughs> to the Danger Zone. You know, you know they say there's high there is like other. this rumor that this was going to be the this was the first movie and that there was going to be a franchise where then we saw that would have been amazing and I, I, it would have been really interesting to see that every, happen every ten years they where just, you would get like now get five movies where you kind of follow each of those characters and I wonder if one of them would be like um you know what's the what's the one where uh, uh what's his face Kevin Costner dies at the beginning and you only see him on the oh, slab like big chill yeah it's like yeah is it going to be like the big chill like those those kind of movies as you get get on like yeah, you know like, where it's like they have to now deal with death or that would have been children. interesting like ten minutes ten years later like Anthony Michael dies. yeah he dies <laughs> he kills himself or he ODs and then and then they all get together yeah. and then Ali Sheedy needs to get pregnant. <laughs> You know, or you know, or just like then someone's having a kid, and, or, and it, it becomes like, um, uh, you know, f- uh, Father the Bride. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like all these other movies are, you know, I'm true, oh, true. You know, uh, so uh, thanks for listening tonight, everybody. All right, thanks yeah. a lot. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I have, so not being somebody that has that was like brought up on the John Hughes movies, especially specifically the John Hughes like teen movies. Yeah, I've of course seen the Home Alones and yeah, those yeah. other kind of bleed over ones. You know, being someone and I also find like looking at something like this at the age that we are now gives you a very different perspective. So like what did you think about, you know, seeing this in its entirety? I think you you look at it more probably in a different kind of light. You look at like for instance, um, you know, uh we have a stellar cast in here. We have Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. And then, lastly, the, the adult Paul Gleason in it. Uh, I, I at the beginning of it, I wasn't really thinking Paul Gleason's that bad of a guy. You know, I feel like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I really, I was thinking like, you know what? He's just this, you know. I mean, and I didn't realize he's supposed to be like the principal. I guess he's I like thought the he was vice like, principal. Yeah. I thought he was like the gym teacher or something. I yeah. thought he was just a very subsidiary. Like he's. He's the teacher that, like, you know, he's running the, the detention for this weekend or whatever. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't really get the idea that he was, like, the, you know, uber uber guy. Yeah. So at the beginning, you know, I thought he was just trying to, like, guys, I'm fucking, you know, f- get your fucking lives together. You know, figure out, you know, that's what this essay thing I thought was going to be a really good idea. But then he kind of, you know, he, they kind of, as the movie goes on, they kind of just make him look like a kind of an idiot. And then the scene with... uh uh, Judd Nelson, where he can, and then, he, then he just becomes like kind of a dick. But yeah, then yeah. I do at the same time empathize with him because you know you got to think about teachers. How hard I know, I've known one guy um, who I think you and I both went to college with, uh, Nick. He went to school to be a teacher. He went into the t- t- into the public school system in New York uh, City, and he left after two years. He's like, I can't, I couldn't do it. The, t- the kids are so bad nowadays, yeah, yeah. you know. And it's just so hard. And I, I have another kid that I went to elementary school with, who's now a teacher in, in, up in the Boston area. And it's like, it's they don't get their due. The, you know, now I mean, it's different. Maybe if you're in a private school, but like public school t- teachers, you're not getting paid very well. And it's really just like you're doing it out of love, yeah. and, you know. And then all the the ailments now of of I don't know. You see problems with children; they have to deal with that every day. So I certainly feel like this guy is like you know, 
but at the same time, it's also they kind of pseudo study his life of where you know he he didn't when she's talking to the janitor, yeah, you know, or you know you didn't it didn't your life didn't pan out the way you thought it was going. And he's like, yeah, that's true. I wanted to be John Lennon, you know. So it's yeah, yeah. Well, that that's you know a lot of things like because if you haven't seen this movie, if you watch this movie the first time, there's things that you know you could miss like the person who's like man of the year yeah. student is the is the janitor yeah when he went to school there so it is like it's this weird dichotomy i mean in a nutshell the plot is like these five students who are represent different cliques in high school five people that would never hang out together although emilio estevez and um marguerite Walt's characters know each other because they're both part of like the popular clique they all get detention on a saturday yeah and it's not even like detention before school because it's on a Saturday. But the, the term breakfast club apparently comes from that John Hughes had a friend who's at his high at his son's high school. If you got detention before school, you'd have to get there like at seven. School starts at nine or whatever. They would call those students. That was the breakfast club. And I, and I guess it goes back because in the Chicago area, there was a very popular long running morning show that ran from like 1940 something to like 1968 called the breakfast club and that was like the good morning america yeah. so they think that the breakfast club that they got there was from that tv show yeah. uh and yeah this is where these these kids and i never heard of getting a a, a detention on a saturday not only you know yeah. i've had detention in high school before in middle school and it's only like an hour or two this is a straight out eight hour day and yeah, these, yeah it's like a full day on a saturday you know and these in that you know, I can understand. I mean, the infractions, like you know, like Emilio Estevez, he he uh, taped some guy's butt cheeks together in the locker room. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character accidentally shot a flare gun off in his locker. Um, Judd Nelson pulled a fire alarm. Um, Molly Ringwald ditched class to go shopping, and then we don't really find out what Alice Sheedy's character is. She, it's interesting. She implies that. You know, she had nothing better to do, so she just showed up there, which is hilarious. But at the same time, we find out she's a compulsive liar, so she could be lying about that, and she could yeah. have actually got a detention. Or she could be lying about being a compulsive liar. You see, yeah, she's a mystery. Yeah, it, it's you know, she she she'll tell us all her secrets, but she lies about her past. You know. So we get these five students that normally would never socialize. And what a great MacGuffin to get them all together in a room. Aside from like, there's a, a, a terrorist hostage takeover, and it's, it's, and it's what toy soldiers. Very, you know, what I mean? a very different movie. But you know, but it maybe was, equally as entertaining. But you get, you get them all in a room because they're they're stuck in detention and they they can't. You know, they they they're stuck in a room. They can't go anywhere, and they're forced to like just uh, you know um, fraternize with each other. And uh, it, the brilliant thing is that we open with. Michael Anthony Michael Hall's voice. We find out that they need to write this essay. That's like uh, part of their assignment is they're going to spend the day and they're going to have to write this essay about like examining who they are. And so we get the beginning of uh, this uh, voiceover. Anthony Michael Hall saying like basically stating like what everybody looks at us as and what we thought ourselves as. Uh, you know the roles we have, uh, which are the a brain. Which is Anthony Michael Hall, an athlete, which is Emilio Estevez, the basket case, which is which is Ali Sheedy, the princess, which is uh Bailey Ringwald, and a criminal, which is played by Judd Nelson. And what's beautiful about the movie is that, you know, and then it's really stated with the S the final essay at the end of the, the day, which is they're all those things. Yeah. You know, we see we, we see each other as being separate, but at the end of the day, like we're all the same. Well, uh, you know, uh, they all have the same problems and 
you know, obviously not everybody's the same, but that there's these barriers that they all have, these these categories they've all been put into, which is very much like when that, you that those are a, very blurry lines, and that and they're not are, as different as they thought they were, and they're very much real roles people assume in a high school. When you get into the high school level, you either for the you either become the jock, you become the nerd, you become the dork you become the hippie the drinker or whatever you know yeah, yeah. you are the theater guy or the, the athlete so you, you these are very much realistic roles and sadly when you become in a high school the lines there are divisions of of cliques yeah. and and f- uh, fractions and stuff so factions not fractions so it's interesting to see them all to come together and they're forced to have to mingle and slowly but surely they start to pick the layers off of uh first they're hostile towards each other they're yeah. making jokes there's almost fights and then you start to realize why you know they they the, their their walls break down and they're able to just realize they're the same you know they they come from different issues they all have different issues and just because one's rich or one's poor yeah, yeah. you know or one's smart and one's stupid that uh you know they have the same insecurities and the same kind of uh, uh expectations to a certain extent that may or may not be realized and then, Which is very endearing. I think yeah. that's one of the things that I think what makes the movie a little more poignant and important. I think this is something that like a lot of teenagers should watch, you know, to realize, hey, you're not alone. You yeah, know, you yeah. shouldn't go take a gun and shoot up a school. <laughs> well, now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Well, there's that. But there's also like the bullying that goes on. And now with the Internet, it's even worse. But, you know, like Molly Ringwald's character is like, well, you don't know what it's like to have like the pressure of you know, pleasing your friends, kind of like the pre- the peer pressure. Uh, you know, it, it's pointing out all these different kinds of pressures that are all coming Yeah, just from, because like, she's rich, they're like, oh, you don't have to worry about anything. You can go out and get whatever you want. And she's like, no, she has these expectations. Or the jo- the jock, he doesn't really want to do that. But he ends up, you know, he when Emilio Estevez breaks down, he ended up hurting that kid just because he thought his father would want him to, you know, yeah, or he yeah. didn't really. So that's real sad. And it's, you know, uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, Anthony Michael Hall is almost contemplating suicide because he got an F in freaking um, shop, class. shop class. You know, so yeah. it's like, you know, or even uh, I love the 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 uh, complex character of Judd Nelson, where you kind of learn in the scene with Paul Gleason that he is just a scared kid who yeah, yeah. has this huge facade because of how hard his life is at home, and he almost he's almost volunteering his Saturdays because he doesn't want to stay at home. He doesn't yeah, want to. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe force be forced with his arguing parents. There's abusive father, so he'd rather stay home. And then he has kind of more respect for the principal Paul Gleason than he made for his parents. So it's it's this great, you know, and it, and it goes back to like a testament where saying John Hughes wrote the fucking thing in two days. <laughs> you yeah, know, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, two days may not mean that he that was the you know he locked the draft and that's what yeah, they're gonna that's yeah. the shooting script. But that's a that's a freaking tour de force to have all this stuff just out and then you just you just sit in front of a typewriter or whatever it is yeah and then he you know with the paul gleason character and then the john uh, capellos the the, the janitor who plays the janitor we get like the two main adult characters who are both the guys that like didn't live up to expectation or or are you know and so you get like this weird dichotomy the split where you see like this group of kids that are like trying to live up to their potential or they're, they're, they're trying to live up to the potential that is set forth yeah. by their parents or the, yeah, like ac- the expectation, yeah. I should say. And then more, you more have than potential. You have, the, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you get these two guys who are like who, 15, 20 years older, who probably had the same pressures and all that. Yeah. And then and just didn't, you know, I, for whatever life 
issues. And it's a very sad movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. And <laughs> when you look at it, they I mean, had, there's, not, there's not like a, a whole lot of like a silver lining to it. I mean, other than the, the possibly, which is a question I think we will need to talk about more as we get, you know, towards the end of the cast, which is like, you know, did, are these, friendships did they get forged like yeah. what does happen monday morning or what's or what's the destiny of all these characters even the janitor and the uh you know uh the principal uh and it's uh they had more uh faculty members yeah that they that that he wrote into it but he ended up cutting them all out and, and i guess there was one called robin as well which was a gym teacher and she actually they hired a, a girl to do to, to uh to be in the uh the role as her and then I guess there was going to be a nude scene where she was going to be in the, she was going to be swimming in the, uh, she was either going to be in the locker room. Um, her name was Karen Lee Hopkins. They hired her as Robin, Robin to be a gym teacher. And, uh, they were going to have a nude scene with her in the locker room. And, uh, Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald, um, kind of didn't like that. They said they didn't, they didn't want her character being nude in the movie. So, uh, John Hughes ended up writing her out. So she's a woman who, uh, she was in Stepmom and she's in Running Man, this actress. So it's always shitty to find out you get a job and yeah. you, get, you get fired. But so they, they, they wrote out her character and I guess her lines got absorbed maybe more by the, by the janitor. You know, so my point is you had other faculty. She was supposed to come in at certain points and talk to the, to the, to the guys in the, to, in, in the library about what's going on, whatever. And so, you kind of make it more of a play. You dwindle down the characters to make it more like an ensemble, like 12 angry men or something. So yeah, it's yeah. easier to, to do or look around. So, um, yeah, you're right. It's not, it is kind of uplifting at the end that they've all kind of triumphed. They've got boyfriend, girlfriends out of it. They, they've kind of maybe overcome their fears and overcome their anxieties of being a, a teen. But then there's that really awkward. It's the only awkward scene I find in the whole movie is like, Awkward in the sense that, like, you know, when the janitor and, and Gleason are drinking together, they're like having a, they're having a six pack and they're talking about like yeah. where, what they believe that that's. But you know, even then, you feel really sad about. Wow, you know, that's just you see that happen in a lot of people's lives. Where you know, yeah. Well, you know, as I watched it this time, I kind of tried to think about like, you know, obviously the vice principal, uh, Dick Vernon. Yeah, he. uh he plays a very like he's the adversary, so he plays a very like antagonist part. But you you wonder like what how like what would have been affected had you taken out the janitor role really? And I don't know if the movie would be all that different, but in a way it does end add like this extra texture of like this guy who was the hot shit, like he was the Emilio Estevez or the janitor the Mali, or the, Vernon. the janitor. Well, he of also that, of that school. He also know? kind of. Um, identify i feel like he's more of a identifying figure to them you know he's he's almost like the chorus where he's like the janitor of a school you know they, he kind of knows things people don't know especially yeah. in the old days you know where you know he kind of blends in he's like the undercover cop <laughs> yeah he's yeah. your 21 jump street you know what i mean <laughs> where he's able to hear things know what's going on you know because he, he kind of just blends into all the kids so i find him being a little more they like him, he likes them, so he's kind of like the buffer between the authoritative figure because he's not a teacher, yeah, so yeah. they don't have to worry about. He's kind of cool. Well, I mean, they give know. him some. They give him some shit in the in this first scene, especially yeah. Bender, but um, which is a, a role that Rick Moranis was going to play. They hired Rick Moranis, <laughs> yeah. 
And Rick Moranis <laughs> yeah, like, had creative. This, this is another great weird what if game for. There's our a cast. lot of what ifs for this yeah, movie, which uh, we can get into. But they, they hired Rick Moranis to play the janitor, and then he had creative differences with John Hughes, and and like then, he wanted to play it like really Russian, like stereotypical Russian or something. I I kind of heard. It's just weird because at the time, it's like, what was he doing? Strange Brew just did Ghostbusters. Uh, you know, maybe uh, which I mean would take away from what's the, the musical. Uh, uh, oh, a uh, little shop. Of yeah, so it's like. He's doing that, and then it's like, yeah, let me uh, play this real ethnic, yeah, you know, which like uh, Robin been... Williams from the Moscow and the Hudson <laughs> movie, you know? <laughs> Yakov Shmirnov. Yeah, but uh, but at the same time, that would have taken away from the fact that, like, he's you know, that this may maybe they add the whole thing of him being like, you know, like the prom king type guy when he went to that high school. Maybe that got added in later. Maybe that wasn't in the original the, script. Rick Moranis is the Russian, wasn't the prom <laughs> king. <laughs> um, but then well, there's a crazy one. I mean, there's uh, a re- originally Emilio Estevez was going to play Judd Nelson, Bender, Bender's character. Bender's, the character of Bender. But then p- reportedly John Hughes couldn't find somebody that he liked to play the, the wrestler. Andrew. <clears throat> or... Is it Andrew? Yeah. And then, uh, so he then recast Emilio Estevez as the job. And I feel like Emilio Estevez almost volunteered, too. It wasn't like he was forced. Yeah, yeah. It was like, Emilio Estevez was like, okay, I'll play the job. I'll play Jacques. The Jacques. <laughs> the Jacques. I play the Jacques. And uh, then they had... Uh, they had. Uh, they thought about Nicolas Cage. Cage. But he his salary was too expensive. So that's interesting to think that if, if his salary wasn't that high, that Nicolas Cage could have been cast in this. And you would have got a weird kind of... Which could have been really interesting, uh, and then they they cast John Cusack in the part of Bender, who was also in uh, Sixteen Candles. Yeah, but then as they approached shooting, and he did, he was he 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 was flying back and forth from LA to Chicago. He was like, yeah, he was cast, so he was in like almost pre preparation for the role. And then <clears throat> it seems like almost last minute, but before they actually started shooting, John Hughes kind of thought to himself, like, he doesn't look threatening enough. Which I agree with. Yeah. A, a, John Nelson John Nelson is very, like... He's, uh... <laughs> he's kind of badass. Yeah. And I don't he, know if you... Even if you dress John Cusack in that, those clothes and he played it with an attitude, I don't know if you would have gotten such, like, a menacing Well, he was also the, the oldest as, one out of them all. It's interesting to, to note that they... At the at the age of filming, you know they're all playing high schoolers. That Judd Nelson's twenty five, Molly Ringwald's sixteen, Emilio Estevez is twenty three, Anthony Michael Hall seventeen, and Ali Shadi's twenty three. And Molly and Anthony were dating at the time because they were just coming off of Sixteen Candles. And uh, Judd Nelson says that Anthony Michael Hall had a growth spurt where he was he started off when they started filming shorter. They shot from like March to May. Yeah. And then by the end of filming, he was taller than Judd Nelson, you know? <laughs> yeah. But Judd Nelson, at the same time, I don't think he, you know, he looks older. I guess you, when you say he's 25, you can say, oh, yeah, I can see that. But he looks like he's like almost 18. He could yeah, be. Yeah, you, know, you always get the, You know, or he could be 19 and he stayed back. There's always, you know, the, yeah, there's always, the, there's always well, at least one kid in high school where he looks like, like, you know, looks like there was this kid that I went to high school with, like, totally looked like he was 30. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't. And it I could think, have been. I think he got left back maybe one year. And those, and you remember when we went to school in the eighties? That was the time where you know people can get left back like two, three times. It wasn't like nowadays yeah, yeah. where like they say like you know let them go through, fuck it, you know who cares about <laughs> them? You know that's back when we cared about the, trying yeah, yeah, to get yeah. the kid to learn something. Um, 
So that's interesting, and I completely agree that I don't think Cusack, as much as I think he's a great actor, I don't think it would have been. Yeah, I mean, you know, who knows? It would Maybe, have been very different. Yeah, not, you know, it would have been a very different portrayal. And uh, whether it would have been better or worse or not, you know, we're we're not the ones to say. I mean, it didn't happen. But and they were saying for Emilio Estevez, if he didn't play Andrew Clark, the the jock, they were going to try to get Michael J. Fox, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise, Matthew Broderick, or Rob Lowe, which had been interesting. And I don't know why. They didn't try that prior to, to Emilio. But I think Emilio played it for perfectly fine because I look at him and then like the next year, one of my favorite movies of all time, Maximum Overdrive, I'll say two years later, I think it's 87. You know, he's the lead in that. And, yeah. you know, so it's like I, I was looking at what their contemporary roles were because then I think of John Nelson immediately, I think of next year is Transformers the movie. And he does, you know, he's, <laughs> he's, uh, Rod- yeah, he's Rodimus Prime or, um, uh, is it Rodimus Prime or he's, uh, you know, the, the young guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and then you have other people like you know we had Jodie Foster tried out for I think Claire. You had um, yeah. Well, originally Robin Wright. the other what if game is that originally John Hughes wanted Molly Ringwald to play Ali Sheedy's part. Yeah, but uh, I guess after reading the script, Molly Ringwald we really liked the part of Claire, who was in the first draft of the script named Kathy. Yeah, and so she kind of lobbied to play that part. So then she got cast in that part, and then they well, she had to actually convince John Hughes, and then she had to convince the company. Yeah, the, the, the uh, but yeah, studios so, and studios, and you know, they finally you know acquiesced. But before they kind of gave in and let her do that, there was a string of other people. Laura Dern, yeah. was considered for that part. These all the, these people auditioned for the part. It's kind of interesting, Robin you know. Right, that's uh, why we all, Foster. That's why we always play the what if game. Yeah, because it'd be completely. We have to get some a, of these movies. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know when we're gonna have it, but I'm gonna get us a what if game jingle. <laughs> we should get a. We should get a what if game. We should get a uh, make ourselves a board game, a what if game board game. And then we like we'll, we'll have to come up with the thing where it's like you know the cue cards of like the thing Clint Eastwood could have played McCready and it's like you know the, and then you, you you know you maybe you get dished out the cards and how would the movie have gone that way um uh, and then Michael Anthony um, Michael Anthony from Michael Anthony Van Halen um, yeah he was in it he cameoed as one of the the, the jocks um, Judd Nelson gets cast and then. Uh, John Hughes ends up having a lot of problems with Judd Nelson because uh, rumor has it he stays in character off camera. Yeah, he's, he's still harassing methody. Molly Ringwald. He want, uh, John Hughes wants to freaking fire him. And then the cast is like, no, he's staying. I guess Paul Gleason really lobbies for him. Like, yeah. No, he's he's doing method. He's staying in character, which I don't know. I find that kind of dickish. I'm, I'm not making any judgments against Judd Nelson, but, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, that he's going to still berate Molly during the, you know, when, when they're not doing takes. But then this is another reason why um, John Hughes directly cites why they didn't do any sequels, because he vowed never to work with Judd Nelson again, which is kind of sad, because if that's the only reason why you wouldn't do this, this movie, to me, you know, if it'd be harder to pitch since uh, John Hughes has passed away to do franchises yeah, yeah. now. But if you had John Hughes helming and saying, I'm going to do, you know, I would completely be on board with, yeah, you know, write out Judd Nelson if you have a problem. Write out Bender. Maybe Bender put a gun in his mouth. <laughs> you know? There's a very dark turn. <laughs> yeah, very you know, quickly. Well, you know, <laughs> he put, you know, he put both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. You know, who knows? You know, he had a really bad night. Well, you know, what's interesting is like, because now we see this happening. You know, we see like this uh, creation of a universe with, uh, you know, this, what's going to happen with the Star Wars franchise now, where we're starting with Force Awakens and then we're going to get like, and I, we're going to get all these other movies that kind of ex- explore these other characters. And, and we kind of see it in reverse with like what Marvel did, which is like, we see 
like the ten pole, it, you know, like you know, it would have been reversed. Here we would have had him if it was th- in that way. We would have had like an Anthony Michael Hall movie. We would have had Emilio Estevez, and then they all would have got detention. Yeah, that, that's that's the that's the Marvel. <laughs> that would have been their Avengers. Yeah, that's the Marvel <laughs> Avengers movie. Breakfast Club would have been like the Avengers movie. So where we now see all these characters that we already know together <clears throat> it'd be but, funny if they did like a temple all you know like it's all their the separate movies about character development all like the day in a life and then it's like the day that leads it's the day of the week that leads up to detention yeah each movie's like you know monday tuesday wednesday and then we you see saturdays like, the, the the avengers when they're teamed up and personally i i'm getting sick and tired of these um superhero movies and i hate that i I don't know. I'm very old school and I'm a crotchety old man. And I hate that everyone's like, you know, for the next Star Wars, for the next 50 years, you're going to have a movie come out every other year. It's like, don't tell, you know, it's so, uh, it's, it's, I would have, I'm saying that though, with the superhero movies, I would have gladly liked to see a couple installments, at least a sequel to see, but a lot of the greatest movies of all time. They, they, you know, they beg a sequel and you never get it. Yeah. I'm just you saying know? it's a very, to then explore, like movies about each one of these characters where the other ones would be kind of bit part or, you know, like supporting parts. It's a very, it's a notion that it seems very contemporary. Yes, you know, it does. Because it's, that's what's happening a lot now. I mean, I don't, I don't think you even had, I mean, we could be, I could be lying right now, but I can't readily cite a movie from the time period where you had a movie made and you made a prequel. You know, I can't think of what, I mean, yeah, you think of like '85, and you think of like Back to the Future, or whatever else was made, or, or prior to that in Hollywood history, and think of a movie that came out, and then they gave you a prequel before leading up to yeah. the movie that or was already out. Or even if the movies weren't prequels, but just the idea of that now we'll have sequels that are just exploring the characters of this one movie. You know, sequels weren't even that big of a deal until. You know, I don't know, Godfather. I mean, sure, yeah. there were so you had like the the Universal horror movies had well, that was sequels and stuff. That was probably but, because they're trying to cash in on a say that in that instance a monster. Let's hey, we can bring them. There's of course there's a way to bring them back from the dead or whatever. Yeah, but, but like you're right. Frankenstein is like a direct yeah. continues that story. It wasn't until like this probably the really 70s. the eight, you know the seventies you get Godfather too, which is you know, you know and a, those a are only sequel. but then you know even those. Pivotal movies of the seventies don't really get sequeled until Empire Strikes until, Back until the eighties. Yeah, it's so it's weird to think of at the time. You know, Hollywood and the marketing and, and life in general was so different. Where you make a movie and that's the one off. You never think of that's the idea with residuals. Never, ever, no one ever thought that if you had a TV show that ever air again or, or a movie at the time, you didn't have home video. You didn't have. You went and saw it in the theater. If you were lucky, you'd see it. A, you know, how many times you wanted to, you'd maybe see it second run. And then it would go away, and then maybe in, I mean, 15 or 20 years, it may come back for, like, a revival. But so the idea of no one ever thought of, like, hey, let's uh, bring back, uh, you know, I, but I guess maybe the idea of a serial where you have yeah, the quarter main, you have the, uh, not Rocketeer, but you have, but back then you have, like, the, the Shadow, you have the, uh, you know, Perry Mason. Those are kind of sequels but at the same time they're not because so this is what continuing story yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's like a television it's like a show com- it's a comic strip it, yeah seeing it at the movie theater. you know so it's yeah exactly it's like yeah. those are half hour things that because in the old days you'd have like a newsreel you'd have a three stooges you'd have a cartoon and then you'd have a serial you'd have like a yeah. shadow or a tarzan or whatever so and that was always like you know you want to find out what happens yeah, yeah. come back next well, week my point is that like a film franchise yeah. the notion of a film franchise 
either didn't really exist yet or was a very new concept in 1985. And I, I guess I don't think even like <clears throat> and then The Godfather of- could be termed as a franchise. I mean, that yeah. was a sequel, but maybe not until Star Wars do you get that, you know, that they're like, hey, we can make a fucking shitload of them. And that was only <laughs> like, you know, there's only three movies there. Yeah, so yeah. it's. Well, then, you know, then you get... Oh, we talk about Planet of the Apes and Dirty Harry. Yeah, but I mean, it was happening, but then to think that, like, you would do sequels to a movie that were exploring the focus of each one of these five characters is a a totally unorthodox proposition. They probably get laughed at. And it is only something that you hear about now with the idea of something like what they're planning to do with Star Wars now. Um so it's not surprising that it never came to fruition. It would have been really interesting, but it, it it didn't happen. In terms of Breakfast Club, for me, on a personal level, this is where we get nostalgic, which usually comes earlier in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, we dove right into it with my omission, that, uh, admission of my omission of seeing it. Um, as, as you know, when I was in junior high and high school, uh, not you, the audience, but as Dion knows, me and my friends made maybe a hundred movies yeah. on VHS with a camcorder. And we did everything from a lot of them were crime dramas to uh we did a Vietnam movie. <laughs> Sweet. Air period or like more like uh you're going back no, to the pe- POWs. Period, period. Oh wow. So uh, you guys are like it was like platoon. It never got finished. It was called Stranded and it never got finished. Oh very much uh, like uh Rambo Two <laughs> Or missing an action. Only got it was only halfway through. I mean, we were real auteurs. Auteur. Well, that and we were very much uh, nerds in, in in that sense. That uh, we made a lot of movies together. And I remember when we were in film school, a guy that we were in class with, uh, John, became uh, almost upset. He was very into lists, and he became very obsessed with this idea that I made all these movies with my friends. And he asked me one day to, like, list them. It got really weird, too, because then he stole a couple of the movies <laughs> that you had to write down all of them. And I just was like, sitting there and racking my brain trying to write it. And, like, the list just kept on going and going and going. And it's just, like, all these movies got made. And then uh, and then I remember even, like, out, like once we get out of college, I found, like, a box of tapes. And I was going through it. I was like, what's on this tape? And what are, the, what, are the, what are the links? You're saying, like, a half hour, you think? Like these movies? They probably around. They probably, if you took an average, it was probably about a half an hour. But there were probably ones that were a little less, and then there ones were probably made. There were maybe some that were like forty five. Yeah, but they probably all around twenty to forty five minutes long. And everything I said, everything from like crime dramas, mob movies, horror movies, started after I saw In the Mouth of Madness. We started making horror movies. Uh, we did like a. A time travel, a very short, this one was a short, a real short one, but we did like a time travel, like Terminator type movie. We did, uh. And how long, how big was the ensemble? You had like four or five guys? There was uh, a core of a, like four of us. And then there was like another two or three guys that would also in. show up in, in the movies. And this is something we continued because me growing up, I would do a lot of camcorder stuff, but my was very parody. I do with my friends like Sign Out Live or Funny Stuff. And then, when we got to college, when you and I met, we synthesized and we made 
more. We made a horror. We made a crime drama. Yeah, we yeah. maybe did some funny yeah, was black funny comedy. It didn't really happen. See, we have an unfinished. It, remember, we have an unfinished <laughs> film. It started in uh, sophomore year because we had we had and nothing were, to do, and they were very much carrying on the tradition of what me and my friends did in high school, which was like original plot lines. Um, we had one that was like a like an like a business like industrial espionage. Type. It was a wacky, a very wacky thing. And uh, what I was saying, like I went through. a tapes and i found a movie that like was not finished and it was one of the rare cases where i was like the lead in the movie yeah and i had no recollection of it like how long ago was this this was i don't know when i was living in portchester so like probably one or two years yeah maybe a little maybe 12 years ago so like a year after two years i found this box of tapes and i was like what's on this tape and i popped it in and i'm watching like the first half of this movie that never got finished and it was like I was like a detective in it, and uh, I was just like I had no record. We made so many of them yeah. that like I didn't even remember making. You're just way. shitting them out. So, but so the point of this yeah. story is to bring it back. You know, uh, there we talk a little bit about this documentary. Maybe when we did the Labyrinth podcast, where I talked about how I made this. Uh, I saw this documentary called Fanarchy, and it was about fan films and stuff. None of ours I would consider fan films. Except for one. And it was on a late, probably a late Saturday night sleepover. I don't know why, but my friends and I decided, I don't remember why, but we decided that we had, be, and the ongoing thing was that a lot of our, there was a lot of gay innuendo in our movies because there was no girls. Yeah. It was just a bunch of dudes. I couldn't, couldn't help but in the window. So in my living room. Yeah, we did a. Uh, and this is like you know, I'm confiding in friends here. Of course, this is, we're all friends here. You know, this is because this is you know, it's one of the more embarrassing things I think we did. Well, I we think did, you should put your pants back on before we finish this. We did a female less Breakfast Club remake of the Breakfast Club, which is very much it's very much <laughs> I think is very real. Which you is know? because I was a bit of a jock in high school, so I played the Emilio Estevez part. My friend Chuck played Bender. Uh, my friend Paul played the Anthony Michael Hall bar, and our and Pete played the the principal, <laughs> and he wore like this. And he went up in my closet. And I had like this suit jacket. And he put a shirt and I on think we, and pulled the collar. Out. We may talk about this in the. You brought this up maybe in the labyrinth cast because we were talking about like if anybody had fan films of like yeah. the Muppets or whatever. And you brought up that it was the uh, you did the, the only straight. Uh, homage you played specifically to a movie was The Breakfast Club. And I don't remember it at much at all. So you have you had an affinity. What is was it something like what you It was a movie that just me and my friends really liked a lot. And so things you like, think you uh, would have you think you would have watched it like with us my friends would come over and it'd be like uh you know my parents would give me access to the video camera. Yeah. yeah. You know. So the whole night we'd do something funny and oh, we were big into Saturday Night Live so we would do Saturday Night Live skits or whatever. So uh, they were semi-planned, like, hey, you want to sleep over tonight? We'll, we'll do some stuff in the basement with the camera. Whereas yours is, do you think it was like you guys watched The Breakfast Club, and then you're like, hey, it's 10 o'clock at night. We have all night. Let's. let's I don't think you know. we watched it that night, but it became it became a movie that was really important to us, uh, a movie that got watched a lot. A lot of the lines, a lot of like, you know, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. Uh, Which has become iconic now, over to the point where maybe – it became so popular, maybe people have forgotten about it now. It was even little things like, uh, are you lo- lovers? Like the l- little throwaway lines. Of course, like, you know, uh, you know, me and you, two hits, you hit, I'm me hitting you, you hit the floor. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of these lines, like you think of, I th- 
a lot of the stuff they attribute to a lot of the stuff that Judd Nelson says is improv, which I find is pretty amazing. Like when he hocks a loogie and catches in his mouth, that's all improv. The very last shot where he's walking across the football field and he throws his hand in defiance in the air, the fist, that became like a staple of the 80s. That's improv. And he says a couple stuff in here that you're saying now. Uh, well, not not the me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Yeah, that's yeah. Estevez. But like eat my shorts, that I always attributed to Bart Simpson. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if, you know, Bart Simpson, Tracy Allman show, but then they got their first, I think it's 89 is they first did the Christmas episode, which gave yeah. us a, a franchise of Simpsons. I wonder if that's a direct reference to The Breakfast Club. You know, like like Bart saw The Breakfast Club on television. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there's a lot of stuff in there that like, uh, you know, that, that he says that I'm like, oh, I never attributed it. I, I've attributed it to the 80s or yeah, to yeah. the, you know, those, you know, radical or rad. But I never thought of like, oh, this is a direct reference to, the, yeah, to, yeah. Know, to him saying this. There were just even like words that my friends would say, and it was directly from that. And I do have to now that I think about it, I do have to make a little bit of amendment to that to, that, to the statement of that that was the only direct homage because we did we did do a version of the Aaron Henry Body to Die for the Aaron Henry oh, story, I, and I knew that well. That's with uh, what's his face, <laughs> which was a Ben Affleck, uh, ben Affleck after school, it was an after school special with the roids huh? <laughs> about steroids. And we did do a version, and that was like the second day I met you. <laughs> We're freshmen. You're like, look at what I did, and you, we popped it in. We watched, and then I think we you, we watched the, the the you taped it off TV. The I had the, the Benefit story, yeah. And then and we the, watched your. And the funny thing was, we did a version of that. I didn't play Aaron Henry. In and it, there's but. a there's a there's an audience member who listens to our podcast that, that knows this series. Oh, yeah. Remember, he wrote in it. Yeah. And he was like, um, I don't remember why that came up. Uh, he, you guys start talking about like because there's a whole series of these after yeah. school specials. There was after, HBO did these after school specials, I guess in the '90s, and they were like a little harder core than you know you would see on NBC or whatever. And they did one of steroids, which had starred Ben Affleck. One about uh, like uh, eating disorders, which starred Calista Flockhart. There was a drunk driving one that starred Sam Rockwell. Uh, the person I can't remember. I apologize. The person that I we were spot I was speaking to via messaging on our site yeah, he, knew he, a he pointed one out there was one about like a kids playing with a gun i didn't know that yeah, one that was an episode of macgyver as well <laughs> i was that was probably an episode of a lot of things back then but so we <laughs> my friends were very into this aaron henry story one and they would be a tell a story a true story about uh someone who uh, in this case had a had a problem with he was a he was steroids. a jock he and then he got, he got on steroids, steroids and it was all the great then, rage and aggression and then at the end of the and then at the end of the show, they have the real person. Oh, like, really? He would be like talking to camera about like how shitty their life is. Yeah. And so like we had our version of the Aaron story and then we cut in the actual Aaron <laughs> Oh, that's great. At the <laughs> end, the show that it's like you, you guys were the dramatization. <laughs> so there was that direct homage. But aside from that one. There was a there was a lesser known Breakfast Club homage that never got the attention that uh, our Aaron Henry version got. But uh, do you do you find it weird? You think about now that makes me think of all the especially when we were growing up, and I'm sure this happened to you, people who are younger than us. But when we were growing up, there was a lot of things people were pushing, like against drunk driving or against drugs or against uh, listening to say your headphones too loud, which is the last one I just said is something that I see nowadays. They've completely. They don't do PSAs at all about that anymore. So I get on the train. Yeah. I have my headphones on. I can hear somebody's like freaking earbuds louder than my headphones over there. And they're like, yeah. they're going to be deaf by the time they're 25. But my point is, I remember us, they, they do these like scared straight things almost to yeah, us. Yeah. Like, you know, this is what's going to happen well, to you. Well, they had the, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. There was a lot of. And I remember there was one where there was a, uh, they, we, went, we went to like the library and they showed us like in, in the 80s, a big thing, which is a very classic episode of Webster. There was a big thing about illiteracy. Yeah. And I remember there was, uh, 
an, an episode where some truck driver got into a car accident, like, and then he runs across and he's on the payphone because you know in the eighties you don't know he has cell phones and he's trying to phone in, you know, the accident. I just got I hit a car and he had a baby. Blah, blah, and they're like, where are you? And he's like. And he can't read the signs. And he's like, I can't read. It's and it's tragic. like, everyone starts crying. No, and, Jesus it, Christ. And, and it's stuck with me. And it's like, I'm getting teary right now thinking about it. But it's like, you think about like, they used to show these things. Like, and very much like you're saying this, the, the Sam Rockwell D, DWI yeah, yeah. or the, the, you know, all these and that. And that was like a very uh, effective vehicle. It's almost like, you know, going to gym class and watching stuff about either sex or sex yeah. ed or drugs. And it's, it's, it's interesting how they would, market things to children in yeah. such a way like the episode of webster was like the grandfather who was russian remember that one where he's like i can't uh, read <laughs> yeah you yeah, know it was very yeah. poignant it's, they always had like the the bike the back of the bike shop episode of whatever show you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and i find you know the episode of punky brewster where was it margo gets stuck in the fridge because you're supposed to take and that was a real thing where people if you were getting rid of your refrigerator you had to take the door off because a lot of fridges the older fridges w- would lock shut Kids would play hide and go seek. They hide themselves in a fridge and then they die because yeah, they suffocate. They suffocate. So that was a big thing. Was you, if you're going to throw a fridge out, you have to take the fucking door off so people. And then that, that's an episode of Punky Brewster or the episode <laughs> yeah, of uh, yeah. Different Strokes where they're at the bike shop and the older brother or the friend goes in the back and he gets molested. And it's like these are like you know like you used to always say that like there's this the you have a comedy show yeah, yeah. and you're watching it and then suddenly it gets very serious <laughs> yeah yeah and it's almost uncomfortably it takes, it takes serious very special episode yeah this is a very special episode of you know like MacGyver you know he, his friend gets shot and then he gets killed and that's why MacGyver hates guns so it's like it's yeah. funny you think about as children how they scare the shit out of you you know well and then you, t- you to the extreme you take a show which you know one of my favorite shows of all time you take 21 Drum Street which is like every show is that yeah you know every show and then you know they would even have like if you're thinking about you know somebody or you're thinking about killing yourself like call this number they would have like a little psa at the end of every I, episode and that's great that's really because that's really forward thinking at the time you know i mean e- there's so much even in this episode in this movie here where you think about now it's so forward thinking where you know you have like the ali sheedy character she's very much like a tim burtony but you know i could see her being like a self-harmer or sure, you yeah. know or you know she maybe has like bulimia, uh she's bulimic or something and it's just you think about all the stuff in the old days, which old days is 10, 20 years ago that people wouldn't talk about, which is very much like, hey, you know, you joke, make light about it, but this is stuff that kids go through. You know, they're either hurting themselves or they go out and they they uh, strike out and they go to hurt other people because of what's going on with them. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see, again, a testament to how brilliant John Hughes is that he's able to write something that's so good yeah. in two days and then, you know, have it be this thought-provoking yeah. thing. Um, and then I guess I, I read as well is that for me, one of my f- most favorite shots in the film is, uh, I, I don't know if it's, it's played out now, but I think it's brilliant is when Emilio Estevez is giving his monologue and it's all one take and it's yeah, like on a dolly yeah. and it's slowly around everything, even to the point where like you're going behind the banister and it's like 15 <laughs> seconds to go behind the banister. <laughs> but, just like yeah, darkness. Darkness out of focus, <laughs> but I love it. But it's like, they say that too was all improv. So yeah, yeah. I, I find that astonishing that they, astonishing that they had these five kids come up with like a, a a pseudo backstory yeah. that's almost very much like a uh, you know I could see somebody a young kid his age now who wants to be an actor taking that monologue and auditioning. Well, with you it. know it's funny you say that because I was, you know, sometimes uh, I th- I don't know for me anyway I will listen to some of our old episodes um, of this podcast. You know, of almost like homework. You know, yeah. like what did I like, what I don't like, or you know, were we funny in that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, did we did we go on too long? And I was just I texted you that I was listening to the uh Mad Love? 
the Mad Love cast, recently. which is which was a, a Halloween cast we did, which was the oldest movie we've done so far. Of, yeah, of, of, of nineteen thirty four or five, paying homage to one of our favorite actors, Peter Laurie. And I was talking, we were talking about M. Yeah, uh, the movie M by Fritz Lang. Another Peter Laurie. And yeah. I was, and we were talking about you know the big end scene, and I was talking about how you had a book of mo- like film monologues and how that was in there, you yeah, know, transcribed into English for actors. So like you know, you want to take an audition. Yeah. And when we had an acting class, we had an assignment where we had to do a monologue, and we had to choose a monologue. And I don't know if I inter- ended up doing it, but I looked through. Was that I, the one we had to? No, I'm thinking. Something. And I remember that you had, and in that same book was Emilio Estevez's monologue from this. And oh, I, really? And I, I don't. Know remember if i did it for that class or if i just thought about doing it yeah because i had already played I mean, a- a- andy clark <laughs> that's hilarious and delivered i still have that book <laughs> and delivered uh, my own version of that monologue wow. in, a, in, a, in a home were you, were you as a thespian were you able to reach that that i don't i doubt it level and <laughs> i doubt it i just remember cry. that i was wearing my letterman jacket in the movie that's all i remember really about the movie. not david letterman but like the letter of your yeah, high school yeah because i was a varsity hockey player yeah um Shenandoah. But I so yeah that book you so far sorry that's funny you bring it up because that book had I remember that book had that, that monologue I gotta go back it. and look at that book because that book had uh, it was astounding to me it had everything that had, that had M Peter Laurie's monologue from M and Emilio Estevez's monologue it had it had stuff um it had Robert Mitchum's Night of the Hunter where he does right hand left hand it had uh, like Taxi Driver it had across the board it had like I think other John Hughes Sixteen Candles yeah yeah and I think it specified. Like female, male, and what you were going for. So if you're going, whatever, comedic ears, you know, and they gave maybe like the, the end monologue of King of Maybe comedy. we'll do an episode where we bring the book out. And, and we, we just re-retrans. And, and, and we do monologues. <laughs> that's a real, that's a real extra a bonus. We'll get drunk. We'll do and we'll, a side cast. Yeah. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll do get, Robert Shaw. We'll get shit faced. And we'll do monologues out of that Do Robert together. Shaw monologues are very, I think, I think Robert Shaw's monologue is in it. That's how I knew in, um, Marlon Brando's from Apocalypse Now, the horror monologue, which I know back to front, which I used. I did that as an audition in high school, and I got a part in a play uh, doing Martin, which is I find that comedic now that I'm I'm, I'm 15 or 16 years old. (laughs) And I'm sitting in front of an acting class to audition, and I'm like, you know, uh, I watched a snail cross the edge of a straight razor. Or, no, that's that's the other one where he's just talking about, like, you know, go kill my family, Willard. You know, know, who the fuck knows if 14 years have seen Apocalypse Now, and I'm giving this thing about, like, the horror of, you know, them cutting off these little inoculated arms. (laughs) But uh, we digress. Um, As we do. So a lot of, a lot, so this movie was shot entirely in sequence. Uh, they went to, he wanted to shoot it in a local high school and the, he wanted to set it in a library. The library wasn't big enough. So what they ended up doing was, um, they ended up, there was a, uh, a they, they built the set, right? They, yeah. They built the set. They, they took a building that, that, that had been closed in 1982. And I find it, a, a, it's another thing that brings back memories. If I can take a minute, uh, because of a book I'm writing, I've I've kind of become like a pseudo researcher on like uh, building structures and, and waves of how things were built. And you think about like uh, you know, post World War II, you have like you know everyone goes out to suburbia, so you have like kind of schools being built, and you have that look. And then in the '60s, you have these really like postmodern, really weird architectural uh, things of schools. And this school that they were in, you know, it, they say it's closed in '82. The actual facility it was used for different things. And then he uses it, and it ends up the, the, it's the 
Chicago or the state of Illinois sells it to the state police, they convert it into a state police department building and it's still used today in real life as a as a state police department yeah. but when they leave the library and they're walking down the halls it's so much like the schools the the elementary and and, and uh, high schools and middle schools that i grew up in in connecticut yeah where it's that that weird architecture and it's just very like concrete and yeah. very like there's no kind of <laughs> you know there's there's no kind you know uh, like in the older days, like when you get in elementary school, like my first elementary school was made like in 1927. So it's beautiful. There's all this art deco. There's real like detail, ornamental works outside where these things are just very weird yeah. cement. Like it looks like they're made to like survive like a nuclear attack. Yeah, yeah. So I seeing them walking through these these hallways, it was just so um, reminiscent of my high school. And, and you know, apparently these are the same exact hallways of Ferris Bueller's school. Yeah, because the they ex- shot them they back shot, to back. They shot the same interiors, high school interiors. Although Ferris Bueller's, the exterior of Ferris Bueller's school is a different school, but the in, all the interiors are shot in the same school. And they, and they, they have they, a lot of the same posters yeah, they, and stuff. They kept the posters. The, um, they used the, the main North High School was that was where they constructed the library, which the library looks amazing. And to yeah, think yeah. that they constructed it inside the gymnasium. The school closed in 82. Uh, it was used by the Park District, and then uh, Illinois State Police bought it, and they still use it to this day, uh, which is crazy. And I guess they used some other exteriors for various things. That, yeah. like, uh, but uh, and of course, you know, all of these, uh, all these John Hughes high school movies, they all take place in a in a fictional city in Illinois called Shermer. And so this is Shermer High School. And it's it's weird to think that all these things take place in this. Uh, he has. Uh, I like when you build a world that's completely, you know, it's like almost like a Frank Capra movie where they're not, it's not entirely real. But Shermer, Illinois, for him, it's, he, that's in Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, National Lampoon's Vacation, and uh, this movie here. And it's not a real town. But the zip code that they use in this film, uh, 60062, is an actual town, which is about, um, I guess, maybe. Uh, 50 miles away from or 30 miles away from Chicago but there in that town Northbrook they it, it was there was a town called Sh- Shermerville mm-hmm. that was incorporated into the town in 1923 but the main drag of uh Northbrook Illinois is called Shermer Road so maybe John Hughes yeah. growing up you know you you have some you know it's yeah. like like Waukegan where Jack Benny's from or whatever the hell he had some and but I find it fascinating where you 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 base it not entirely like you know you see a lot of these uh, uh, golden era films comedies whatever say they take place in New York or even Twilight Zone episodes and then there's a fictional town in Westchester or Connecticut like Willoughby or whatever and I I, I love that where it's it's almost real but it's not exactly real and it's great that he that he created this world where all these characters kind of can you know, yeah. walk around in this fake town or city, you know? I mean, I'm sure we talk about him a lot in the planes, trains, and automobiles, but he's a fascinating guy. He was amazing. John Hughes, he's born in Michigan and grew up there for a little while, but his dad was a, was a uh, salesman. So they actually ended up moving a lot. And so he was, uh, you know, kind of describes himself as being kind of introverted um, probably didn't have a lot of friends, you know, uh, one of the places that they lived for a long time. There were no other boys his own age. And then uh, the Beatles come out and kind of like changes 
life. I mean, basically, all of a sudden, and then Bob Dylan, and he says, he's like, it's literally like on Thursday, I'm one person, and then the next day on Friday, I'm a different person for, for having heard this stuff. And you can see that the love, his love for music kind of permeates through uh, all of his movies, especially the ones he directs. And, um, well, and specifically for this movie, um, they he does a direct reference to the Beatles' Hard Day's Night, where one of the minor characters in it is Richard Vernon. Yeah. So he takes the name Dick Vernon, gives Paul Gleason that character, and that's also another reason. Then we see, I think, someone opens a locker, and you see a Beatles poster in the locker, and then yeah. that was the, the joke when the janitor and uh, Gleason are together. Who do you want to be? And he's like, I want to be John Lennon John when I grow up. So yeah. it's like uh, for those real diehard Beatles yeah. fans and out And then, there, of course, you know, on a more – on a bigger level, say like Ferris Bueller, like he lip syncs, like Twist and Shout, yeah, the, the parade and stuff. But in 1963, they move again and they move to Northbrook, Illinois, and he intend and he attends Glenbrook North High School, and that's where a lot of the inspiration for a lot of these high school movies come from. So obviously, that move is kind of a pivotal point for him that they move to Illinois, and that's the zip code I just did six zero zero six two is Northbrook. That they read at the beginning. Some that's there you go. So there it is. Yeah, it's like Shermer is, is Shermer is Shermer Road like, is like this, uh, you know, fictional version of this town that he moves to, and uh, which is a suburb of Chicago, and it becomes such a you know obviously made such an impact on him that like that's his life in high school then is what kind of becomes this universe that he creates. And one of the yeah, like you said, one of the high schools they used. Certain either a, or a hallway or something is one of the schools he actually went to because they must use the couple. They used the yeah. the North Main one that's been closed for a lot of the majority of the stuff, and then they used an exterior from something else, and they used maybe a hallway or something from another one. And one of them is the actual one he went to, which is fascinating. You know? um, he ends up going to college at University of Arizona, which he drops out of. And somehow, I don't even know how you would do this, but he starts writing jokes and he sells jokes to like Rodney Dangerfield and Joe. Oh, see, this is, yeah, I, I think this is the, this is back in the day when you could do this kind of thing, yeah, where it's yeah. like you know, you, you can make a movie and you could show it to people, and people are like, oh, you've got style, we're going to give you a chance. Well, nowadays you're fucked, yeah, you know. Yeah. But do you think of the days where, I mean, there's a great, uh, uh, um, oh Jesus, I can never remember anybody's name. Uh, uh, who's the the real famous redhead uh, that had the show with, um, uh. Um, Man or woman? Woman, uh, not Lucille Ball, but the, what's her face? Just recently, you know, she's uh, got Carol, Carol Burnett. Okay, yeah. Carol Burnett. She had her show, and there was another girl on it whose other name escapes me, but she's the lead from uh, Mama's Family. You know oh her? yeah, Vicky Lawrence. Thank you. Vicky Lawrence is like 15 years old, and Vicky Lawrence writes a yeah, letter yeah, to yeah. Carol Burnett saying, "Listen, I'm a huge fan. I want to do what you do for my life. How do I get there?" Carol Burnett gets the letter, calls her up and says, come on down. You could be part of my cast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's how Vicky, Lor- Vicky yeah. Lawrence gets it's her whole start. career. And it's like just because she wrote a fan letter. And it's like, you know, she, of course, becomes, like I said, Mama's family. She's a big part of the Carol Burnett show. And it's she like, had a music career for a while. And she did a lot of stuff in the 80s in terms of like all those game shows. Yeah, you know, and it's like you think it just, just because she wrote a fan letter. So that's why I always say to like, you know, never – you know, at least at least at the end of the day, I've learned in life, like a lot of the the the, the things I think about is like if you try it, at least you could say I tried. You yeah. Know, if, if you don't What's do it, the, I'm, I'm you know, everything I do these days. Is, yeah. Nowadays, yeah, the book I wrote was like, hey, what do I got to lose? Yeah. You know, I mean, I've try. had enough things in my life where it's like regrets, where it's like only if I tried, if I tried to slap that girl and kiss her. <laughs> <laughs> 
in that order, I could have been a different guy. <laughs> so, uh, but ultimately, uh, John, John, Hughes. John Hughes goes into advertising. So he writes jokes, and he, they get picked up crazy yeah, enough. Yeah. But he ultimately his main job is advertising in Chicago. Uh, he works for an advertising firm, and that job takes him, uh, allows him to travel to New York somewhat frequently for work. And he is a fan of the National Lampoon magazine, mm. and he starts to hang out around the offices. <laughs> And he gives them a short story called Vacation 58, which they print in the magazine, and that becomes the basis for the movie Vacation. Amazing. Um, there's, a, there's a documentary that is somewhat recent about National Lampoon. The, the magazine. The magazine yeah. right now. That's pretty interesting. Um, the poster is of the famous cover that they have where um, they have a gun up to, to a, a dog's head. Is it a it's dog like, or is it a kitty? It's a dog. Oh. And it's like, you know, if. You know, if you don't read this magazine, you are going to shoot this dog or something. It was the magazine, but uh, it was the magazine cover. Um, and they talk about John Hughes, a little, you know, and obviously vacation uh, in that documentary. Although he's such a small part of the history of National Lampoon. Magazine. Does he write? Is that his, that becomes his first? That was like his first calling script? card. And then he does he write? He and then he ends up writing first. the script for Vacation. But the story and, and the script for Vacation are very much in. The John Hughes style of being there from the kid's perspective sitting in the back seat because it was it was like a comic version of like his memories of his vacation going his on back vacation. in the day when you get into a car and, and go when on they ended driving. up making the movie with Ivan. Uh, I don't know if Ivan Reitman produced it, but uh, Harold Ramis, I think, directed it and it gets rewritten to be more about from like Chevy Chase's perspective. Yeah, the father. So the original script was it is. I think he's still credited to to John Hughes, but his original and he also. Uh, one of the things that they wanted to do, National Lampoon, was they were going to do, because they had this uh, famous, uh, you know, article or series that was like uh, class reunions, and they would make like a fake, like yearbook, became like a funny gag. So they're like, well, what if we, you know, parlay that idea into a movie? So John Hughes actually writes the script for their class reunion movie, which later gets canned, but that is what evolves into Animal House. Wow. The, that kind of concept is... So he writes... I don't think he writes... He doesn't write Animal House, but he writes the script that eventually evolves into Animal House. Um, so that's how he kind of breaks his way into Hollywood and with Vacation, and he writes like Mr. Mom. He's mostly a writer, but as we talked about earlier, 16 Candles becomes his directorial debut, even though Breakfast Club... Was planned to be his directorial debut, and he really the, the 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 studio was really hesitant about giving it to him. So he kind of said, "Hey, listen, you know, I'll only do it, I'll do it for a small budget, a million dollars. I'll set it in one location." Uh, very forward thinking of him, where he's like, "I'll write the script so it's yeah, yeah. very enclosed, it'll be very simple. It's only going to be like a play." So they kind of agree, and then, like you said, that he this intends to be his directorial debut. But I guess at the same time, they're so happy with him, like, "Fuck it, do sixteen <laughs> candles, pal, do sixteen yeah, candles." A year before. <laughs> You know, uh, but I love also going back to how this is the tradition of the, uh, you know, the, the old, you know, Blackboard Jungle Rebel Without a Cause, that you also get the, the, the Schultz kind of Peanuts style, the pseudo uh, philosophical takes on life and reality that they kind of expound. Yeah. You know, you have that idea where it's like the kids kind of giving their take on what life is and all that. Sure. You, you know, which is very interesting. That And also, uh, on a kind of a personal level, what this movie kind of stayed with me because I'd say... I don't know, in the early 2000s, post-high school, whatever around the time that Lost Translation came out, the movie with uh, 
Bill Murray Bill and what's Murray her face? Scarlett Johansson. Johansson directed by Coppola's Sophia Coppola. Um, it was interesting that movie came out at that time, and it, because it was a it was a time when I started to really recognize that there's these instances in your life where you are put into a circumstance uh, uh, with somebody or a location, or you that life is, you know, you have your your lasting relationships with people. For instance, like Dion and I have been friends since 1997. But along the way, you have all these little encounters with people that don't last longer than is needed. You know, like, for instance, like, you know, right around the time the Lost of Translation came out, I was having a lot of computer problems. And there was a day where I was on the phone with a representative from, like, Dell for, like, three hours or something like that. And over three hours, you know, there's a lot of when you're talking to a you know, tech guy on the tech support or whatever you're, it's a lot of like waiting. Like, okay, let me restart the computer. And so you, you when you're on the phone that long, you start, you know, like we're, we're like cracking jokes or like, what's the weather like there? <laughs> you know, and after like, was he an American? At yeah, the time? yeah. He was, I think he was like in Texas. It was yeah. one of those ones that was like in Houston. And um, so at the end of the conversation, it was like this weird thing where it was like, you know, everything was fixed and it was like, all right, Jim, well, have a good one. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your life. You know, and it's like that was that 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 little uh, relationship was over. You know, like that little the rapport that was made or whatever. We had this little interaction, and then it was over. And so I started to think. It was around the time that Lost in Translation came out that I started thinking a lot about this, and that's what that movie is about. Like him and uh, Scarlett Johansson like meet up in Japan or whatever, and they have like this relationship that ends up that ends at the end of the trip or whatever and so in a way that's exactly what you know breakfast club kind of is and so this movie even past high school as i kind of and then after college as i matured this movie's always kind of stayed with me as being a very like beautiful representation of of that kind of thing like you said there's these five characters that normally would never uh, socialize and then they're brought together in this one situation um and as uh you know anthony michael hall's character kind of points out like you know he thinks of them as friends now and there is this okay we see that uh ali sheedy and emilio estevez have like this little romance by the end of the movie which is kind of fucked up because he only really is interested her once she changes i know i know (laughs) which was also kind of funny because me and my friends always thought like she looked so much better before yeah like as the the rebel (laughs) like molly wall kind of makes her ugly yeah whereas she was you know she was attractive as the other part and then it's so interesting because when i watch the movie now I didn't really see that much of a difference in the sense where like yeah, everyone's yeah. like everyone stands up, she's striking. <laughs> oh my god! There's a there's like they have like a, a backlight on her now, and she's got like a light for her eye, an eye light, and you're like, wow! And it's like, well, I mean, and then you know, obviously there there's this relationship that's you know maybe budding uh, from you know between Mallory Ringwald's character and and uh, John Nelson's character. And then you, and then they still have like the oddball out, which is Anthony Michael. Yeah, poor guy. But there is like this, so there, it ends with like this, pro, like, like this could, these friendships could last, yeah. till, you know, past, past this day. Yeah. But I always thought of the movie as like being a very interesting and, and kind of beautiful representation of that kind of relationship where it's like they have eight hours together and that, and those relationships that are forged in that eight hours 
there's a very good chance that they're not going to last past that. Well, hours. you you bring this up, and it's it's very uh, topical. Where I just read as of this recording, there is a book coming out or is already out that William Shatner does about his relationship with Leonard Nimoy, and uh, it's about the the friendship they had together. And um, somebody interviewed Shatner for the book, uh, and they were talking about it. And Shatner starts bringing up how the relationship that him and Nemo had was very different, but he starts he starts bringing up, which is very much a reality in the business we're in, where, you know, a lot of times, and he 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 used the example, so I'll use it. He's like, say you talk, you take Star Trek. He's like, you know, when you're on a show together, you know, you when you're hanging out with the cast and crew, you guys all become best friends. But then once the show dissolves, yeah. you may never see these people again. And it's the same thing he said, like with Boston Legal. He's like, me and David Spader hang on, hang on every day. Spader. I'm sorry, David Spader. <laughs> James Very Spader, different show. Yeah. <laughs> Him and James Spader hung out every day. Yeah. But then, you know, they were best friends. But then he's like, after that, we've never seen each other. We, you know, and, and I find that like, you know, I go out on the road with my job and, you know, I, I become really close friends. And then, you know, say you say your goodbye and you may never even talk to this person again. And it's interesting that that is very much a reality. And so it, that touched me like, oh, I can understand that. And then more to his point, he was saying it was different because for him and Nimoy because Star Trek ended and then they started doing these appearances. And then when the movies came back, they kept. Yeah. So it forced them to have this lasting relationship unlike these other things. Yeah. But this is very much true where, yeah. you know, you're in a situation where you're kind of forced either because of your profession or because of a detention to have this. You become friends. But then afterward you leave, you know, like you're saying, or you get stuck on a train because of a snowstorm or you're stuck in an sure, airport yeah. because of a de- flight delay or you're on a bus with some dude next to you. become fr- Or you're sitting, I was just at a jazz show. I was sitting next to some kid who was here. It was his last day. He was traveling from Korea. We sat there and we chatted, yeah. you know, for like half an hour in between the sets. So you're never going to see that And then I'm again. not going to say, run back to Korea. Today. He's yeah. in Korea right now. Yeah. And then, you know, they give you your card. You exchange numbers. Nowadays, maybe you, you become Facebook friends with them and yeah, that's yeah. it. I mean, it's a little more lasting now because of the internet and media you can have. a. But in the old days, certainly, it's like, well, you're going to exchange a phone number with them maybe or something yeah, yeah. or an address. And, you know, at most, you one tries to reach out to the other with like a longhand uh, letter or a sure. phone call, and then that's it. So it's it's interesting that this this happens, especially you know nowadays where you're like technology. You yeah. call somebody up and you're on the phone with somebody. It's okay. You know, I think for me, I, around that time was that it, you know all this was kind of happening and becoming kind of like uh, you know uh, I would start recognizing these kind of relationships. You know, it was probably around the time that I started playing in bands in New York City. Yeah, and now it's been like over ten years that I've played in various bands or had my own band in New York City. But it's a very weird relationship where, like, you're not friends. It's not like we went, you know, we grew up together and we formed a band when we were in junior high and we're still playing. It's like you find guys on Craigslist that want to play, and you're friends for the for the uh, two hours that you rehearse, yeah, or the show, and you might have a beer together after the show. But you don't socialize other than that. <laughs> you know, it's a very specific relate- relationship where you're creating something together. But you know, there's been I could ha- count on one. Th- hand the amount of times i've socialized with the various band guys outside of being you know of playing or what happens if the band dissolves you know even and that's it you know the guy leaves a band um you know i was just exchanged emails with a guy who played drums for me you know 10 years ago uh but that was the first time i exchanged emails with them probably in the last eight years yeah <laughs> you know um so it's just there's all these weird relationships and and although there's this promise of of these maybe extended relationships that are going to happen after this movie, you know, teenage love is a weird thing. Like I can even cite like, you know, being in high school, taking a field trip 
I think we went to Boston for a field trip. And there was this girl in my class, and I'd never, she was not in any of my particular classes. Like, I didn't have any classes with her, but we, you know, and it, I wouldn't say that it got like heavy or anything, but we started with like for that field trip, like we hung out and we sat next to each other on the bus, and, and it seemed very promising. But then that bus trip was over, that field trip was over. And then, like, I never talked to her again. I remember I, I saw her one time in the hallway, and I was like, hey. And she's like, hey. <laughs> you know, and, like, I never had any classes with her. So do you think this that that's very much goes to the point of this movie? Yeah. I was saying, gonna, like, that, that's my point is, again? like, there's it's it seems like a, it ends on a very positive note. But, like, I don't know. That's my question to you. Like, what do you think happens Monday morning? Which I don't is, know. I mean, I which would, is you would think Anthony that... Michael Hall's character's big dilemma is, like, I think of you as friends. But are you guys going to be friends with me when this is over? And a lot of didn't Mueller's was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think or Claire, we... Claire was like, well, honestly, probably not. Yeah. You know? I mean, and, I mean, they're. I think the people who become romantically involved kind of forged a relationship, you know, with the airing or, yeah. you know, with, uh, but who knows? I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, come Monday morning, uh, peer pressure sets in. Yeah. And then Judd Nelson, he may have that for the next 20 years. That, that, <laughs> that little earring he's, he's drinking on a Friday night in his pickup truck outside the, uh, the choking puke. And that's, he's like, this, this was her, the one that got away. So uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know? It's just like, that's one of those things that I think why a movie like this, has longevity for me even more so than something like 16 candles or weird science which are movies that i i like a lot and yeah. I, and i enjoy to watch but this movie has like this little it's a little more, there's a little more depth to it on that level for me and well, it's, it's and it's something that i like i said i i have been aware i've made myself aware of you know, in the last 10 years, these little relationships. And that's kind of what this movie's about at its core. You know, aside from, obviously... So it's a fear growing up. And yeah, being aside, a, from, an aside from all, like, the other themes of uh, being a teenager and how they're not all as different as they might think. And then, you know, and growing up and all that stuff. There's this... It's one of these movies where it's just about this wacky, this weird little relationship for eight hours. And it's... Uh, it has it, it just... I don't... No, I can't presume that it's something that other people are as interested in me as I am, or as interested in as I am. But that's why this movie kind of like holds up for me, because like it's just these little things that are so true. There's a lot of truth in this movie. Yeah, everything from like we were saying, like the almost exaggerated importance of virgin of of someone's virginity. It, there's truth in that for for when you're that age. There's truth in these cliques. There's uh, there's truth in the pressures that they all feel in their life, whether it's for their grades or to be the best in their sport or to be the most, you know, to live up to the expectation of being the most popular in school. There's just a lot of truth, and I think that's why this movie kind of resonates with people from when you see it when you're a teenager and you relate to it on that level to when you're now pushing 40. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think also it resonates for, I think people our age for me is because of the whole reason why this cast exists, which is like nostalgia. Yeah. And so it's, there's a nostalgic aspect to remembering when we first saw it. And there's like, there's also a nostalgic aspect of like feeling like you were in that, you know, like that's your high school life. You're part of that world. Like I used to joke around when we started going to college, 
it was the first time I had cable every day. Yeah. You know, so I fucking I watched like eight hours of Saved by the Bell for for the first entire world, year that you and I lived together. And I used to joke around with uh, one of our roommates. I said, "Yeah, remember the time where you know when we went to Mac the Max after." fucking class and i used to pretend that like at that point like my real high school memories had kind of faded away and they were replaced with bayside <laughs> high memories and it's funny because that became a that was a skit of like last year or whatever that jimmy fallon did oh yeah yeah did on uh, the tonight show where he was like remembering his sky, high school years and it he there was like a reunion of say by the bow i was like that's that was my joke and so <laughs> you know there was like looking back at breakfast club and being like I don't know. Almost like wishing that you were part of the Breakfast Club too. Yeah. So there's that nostalgic aspect to it also that and, I think gives it longevity. And it's become very iconic because these the, the principal actors became they become that brat pack, which yeah. would go on and do you know a whole core of these movies in the 80s up until the 90s, and I guess as well as the 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 uh, isolation or or the 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 estrangement that, that John Hughes had with uh, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald at some point decided she didn't want to do these anymore and pursue like an adult career. Yeah. And that kind of really, I guess, upset John Hughes to a certain extent because maybe that would somehow mean that John Hughes's movies weren't, you know, uh, bona fide hits or bona yeah, fide credible. Also, you know, who knows <clears throat> what it could have meant. I mean, she, in a lot of ways you could argue that she was his muse. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like he didn't want to get pigeonholed with those kinds of movies either. You know, like yeah, because he, he did planes and trains, and then you know, he, he tries. He to... also was like, I could do more than this kind of movie. So who knows what the truth is there? Yeah. But I could imagine that her wanting to separate from him for professional reasons could be painful yeah, in a lot of ways. Of and, and of course, I think Michael Hall was very much, uh, you know, his his screen like uh, depiction of himself. I think there was that relationship there between them or he was like he was his representative like i would i would i think that he thought of himself as the anthony michael hall characters in these movies well he at the end of the movie uh hughes cameos and hughes picks up yeah he's anthony, his father he's his father he picks him up and, and then you know and drives off which I, I found very funny and uh i have a weird uh anthony michael hall story which is like kind of vicarious where Back in 2008, you know, he shows up, he's in The Dark Knight, Anthony Michael, with also the actor who plays Emilio Estevez's father uh, at the beginning of the movie. He, oh, yeah, He's yeah, a yeah. cop in uh, Dark Knight, too, but that's that's, that's not related <laughs> to anything. But so this is a one late night in New York City, 2008. Uh, a bunch of us after work, we go to a bar on uh, the West Side in Hell's Kitchen called Social on like 8th or 9th Avenue. We're there. And it's getting late, and I have to catch a train at Grand Central back to where I live in Westchester, about 20 minutes away. And when it gets later in the evening, you know, the trains become more scarce. So I'm hanging out with this girl at the time that uh, very good looking that I work with, and we're hanging out. I miss my train, and I'm like, crap. And she's like, well, if you want, we can leave together, and we can gradually make our way back towards Grand Central, and maybe we can go someplace else for a drink. And, you know, where I work on uh, – on Sixth Avenue, there's a watering hole, a pub that we go to over here called Langens that that a lot of our workforce goes. It was like, okay, we'll stop over there and we'll have a drink or two. So we leave this one place social. We're walking back uh, over to, to to the west side. We walk through Times Square on 47th, and on the corner of 47th and Broadway, there is a bar that it's very small. It's almost like a like like a a very like a small McDonald's. It's not very big at all, and it has glass windows. 
I mean, the whole the the whole thing on the corner is all made of glass. So as we walk by, it's like say one in the morning, and as we walk, I looked into the windows and sitting uh, at a table against the the glass wall, facing outward by himself, is Anthony Michael Hall. And I realized, you know, at the time, you know, you heard he's he's coming out in a new movie. It's The Dark Knight. Dark Knight hadn't dropped yet, but at the same time, people were talking about it because Heath Ledger passed away. Yeah. But it's one in the morning. You're in Times Square. He also was in the dead zone. I mean, he was working at that. Yeah, point. he was. And and it's and it's and it's uh, and he came through. I I met him years ago when he was promoting the dead zone, which and he seemed like a very nice person. Very, you know, he he looked completely different from how he looks. Sure. You think about him in these movies. Yeah. The John Hughes, he's, like, he's an adult now, and he also plays. He's the first Rusty in Vacation too. Yeah. Is- so it's so crazy, but. I got the impression that he was like very unhappy and he was like very lonely. It's one of the morning he's sitting there drinking by himself, looking out, you know. So we passed him and we went to the next street over to where this place we were going to. And I was like, should we go back and talk to him? And we were like, <laughs> we were very like, I don't know. What should we do? Maybe he wants a friend. And we never ultimately did because I had to go catch my train and we shared a cab at Grand Central. But it was like, it was very sad. And I was like, I, it was one of my regrets. Like, did Anthony Michael Hall need a friend that night? <laughs> you know, should <laughs> well, we have gone back? You know? Hopefully maybe one of his friends was just in the bathroom. Right? Yeah, you know, and he, was just, and he was contemplating the ifs. But it was very sad. I've always I've always kept that with me. And I've forgotten about that till we were going to do this recording. I was like, oh, I have that weird Anthony Michael Hall story, you know. But yeah, you're right. He was doing the dead zone at the time, and I'd seen him. Uh, yeah, I mean, and- there was a period there where he wasn't doing much of that. There was that that very weird season of like Saturday Night Live where both him and Robert Downey Jr. were oh, members yeah. of the cast. And, that like, was between the <laughs> yeah when they they got rid of like the Joe Piscopo and and uh, uh, Eddie Murphy years, and then it was right before like the the Dennis Miller, Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, yeah, Mike yeah. Myers, Kevin Nealon generation came. Yeah, they, they had this awkward year of like, what's her face from Seinfeld? Yeah, yeah, totally. and, and, yeah Robert Downey Jr. Quaid. <laughs> They're just throwing anybody they can in there, you know. Uh, which is very awkward. Yeah, he was there for a year, and then I, I think they got rid of that entire cast except for like maybe Dennis Miller or, or John Lovitz or Phil Hartman, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. three people, and then they and then like Victoria Jackson and everybody. So, um, uh, I guess the a lot of things coming off this movie there is the um, John Hughes' original cut was 150 minutes, mm-hmm. and they cut it down to like it's it's I think it's barely like an hour and a half. Yeah. And uh, fascinating to see what. Well, that's. I mean, I know there's. They talk about scenes that were left up, but in terms of like how much the movie would have changed. Well, there's 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 a talk there's a whole bunch of stuff. If you go online, you can you can look. There's scenes that they that they shot that were cut out. There's scenes that they never shot that were supposed to be in there. There is a TV cut where there is evidently there's like two scenes that are added in for length because we talk about in the old days. Yeah, yeah. You know, if 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 they needed to fit up an hour and a half movie, two hours with commercials, they they. Hey, whatever you have on the cutting room floor. So there's two scenes that are put back into a TV cut. And then there's also like two extra shots in the trailer. They talk about that aren't in the movie either. But when they did the 25th anniversary uh, for this movie, Ali Sheedy revealed that there was a director's cut that John Hughes' widow has. But she says she won't disclose any details to the widow about where it is or whatever. But she's in possession of this 150-minute cut, which would be really interesting to see what else. And there's, like I said, tons of speculations about what they did shoot and what they didn't shoot that was left on the cutting room floor. And then there's these extended sequences that were in this TV cut. So it is interesting, like we always say, that there's these different versions of yeah. these films that they end up you know, really just cutting down and... And we always talk about the huge phenomenon of weird movies like, you know, Night of the Creeps or Army of Darkness or, or yeah. uh, various Carpenter movies where, you know, they, they have this completely different TV cut. <laughs> 
you know, yeah. and it becomes quite notorious where, like, when we were little, you know, you have to buy, like, a bootleg or you have just a guy, you know, a friend of yours taping all these things that you never see the light of day again, you know? So, um, that's they, really interesting. Recently, on a side note there, recently they released a, I think it was Scream Factory and Shout Factory released an Army of Darkness. And they have, like, the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and I think they have the television edit on there, too. So, if you're interested, because the television edit's, you know, like, oh, yeah. there's even stuff, there's stuff in it that's not even in the director's cut. Like for, for, for all the little people and all Army of Darkness is theatrical, is like 82 minutes. Wow. <laughs> so, they had to add a whole shitload to fill up time for, for a television version. Um, And it seems in the 80s, you had a lot of, Chicago was a big highlight in a lot of movies. I mean, aside from his, uh, John Hughes, there's that, I there's that girl movie, Girls Just Want to Have Fun with Sarah Jessica Parker. And I think that takes place in Chicago, too, because the dance show they're trying to get on is in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Chicago still Chicago. this day. Chicago. What a wonderful town. It, they, they, they shoot a lot of their, a lot of, uh, like, court shows, uh, a lot of, like, Jerry Springer, a lot of those kind of shows used to be, Springer's no longer in Chicago, but a lot of the, a lot yeah. of stuff got shot in Chicago, so it's... Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of those... Yeah, it's funny, because, like, the Cusacks are from Chicago. I think a lot of the actors are from that generation. Yeah, Second, C- Second, uh, Second City, Chicago kind of based, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, which is, I mean, it was Canadian as well. Uh, I think in the old days, because I know a lot of, like, like a lot of the reality court judge shows were shot in Chicago, you know? They'd go, people would go there, and they'd shoot Judge Joe Brown, or, you know, sure. Janine Pirro show would be shot there, so... Um, I also thought too that um, the the actor who we said who played the janitor he looks a lot like the actor Don Gordon who was Steve McQueen's friend who shows up mm-hmm. as his partner in Bullet he's in Papillon he's also in our podcast we've done Towering Inferno I mean he looks certain scenes he looks exactly like Don Gordon I was like wow maybe he's like his long lost younger brother <laughs> you know <laughs> um, the poster I think it was Andy Leibovitz yes Andy Leibovitz Lieb- does the poster and they said it was so uh, influential that they started that's how they started marketing these kind of films because of this particular poster she did I mean it's a kind of it's it is an iconic poster and i feel like it's been parodied a lot i mean the most famously in my world texas chainsaw massacre 2's poster do you think that was a direct <laughs> reference to <laughs> i think that? it has to be right that's interesting to think about wait texas chainsaw massacre 2 what year is texas 2 to toby hooper that's that's what the uh the the notorious uh dennis hopper right yeah are we thinking a leather face no leather face no, is the one with dennis the lipstick Hopper's right is two no i know i know um dennis hopper's two but i'm saying is the poster that we're talking about with no, Raleigh and Down is two. It's two because it's because uh, if this is eighty five, then I thought Leatherface was eighty five. We have a script runner running out to to, to, <laughs> to to check this for us because you're right. That is very iconic because you think about they're all sitting there like that with the the, the hitchhiker and Leatherface and the uh, I forget Texas Chainsaw Two is eighty six. Wow, so that is a direct, and I don't think Dennis Hopper's in that picture, is he? And we're looking at the poster now. Yeah, Dennis Hopper's not in the picture, but you do have the old man, you have Leatherface, you have the uh, older, look what your brother did to the door, <laughs> you have the hitchhiker, and you have, yeah, I don't know who's have, on the ground. You have Leatherface as kind of the, uh, Leatherface the, is the Judd is, Nelson. Leatherface is the Judd Nelson. You got the grandfather is uh, Ali Sheedy. Um, you have the hitchhikers, uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. You have the, uh, the, the regular father, older brother, who, or whatever. Emilio. Is, you know, and and then, then I can't tell who's, who's on the ground, the Molly Ringwald, because it's not Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper probably was like, I'm not staying for any kind of. I don't know. Of, it looks like a some kind of corpse or something. It's somebody with a bag over his head. I, it's, it's been so long since I've seen not that movie. Not even. I think it's just like a zombie face. Oh, maybe it's one of the people. It's been, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen yeah. that movie. Dog Will Hunt. Yeah, it's been so, years yeah. since I've seen that movie. That's interesting. 
So there you uh, go. But it was There's very, <laughs> if it was very influential, and to the point where we're like influential we're, enough. Yeah, we're oh Jesus, it's 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 hitting um all kinds of genres there. Uh, and then, you know, like a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of middle fingers in the movie. Remember in the 80s, middle fingers were huge. Oh, and, like, <laughs> and like beautiful, like different renditions of it. Yeah, you know. You know it was like, uh, you know, you can hear this, should I turn it up? It's like a very nonchalant one. You know, it's like, you know, only the tip. Yeah, just, just, it's just, <laughs> just enough. And uh, Molly Ringwald's middle finger is very different. Everybody's got their own expression with their middle finger. Yeah, so it's very much, 80s was a huge middle finger thing. I remember, and then, you know. Uh, of course, you know, some language that isn't. You know, some fag and stuff. Which yeah. It's not PC. They're not no more. Yeah, it was the 80s back then. So, the, <laughs> no more glory days. Um, and then uh, the the soundtrack as well. You know, you have uh, Don't Forget About, Don't You Forget About Me by um, Simple Mind. Simple Mind. And that was kind of like their only hit, but it, it's interesting that which they. Which I've uh, always heard a rumor that that was, song was actually written for for Billy Idol. Yeah, Billy Idol, and, uh, he turned it down and Brian Ferry turned it down. But in, in 2001, Billy Idol did record it for a bonus track of his greatest yeah, hits album. which I have. I actually have that. That's pretty that. sweet. But you <laughs> think with of, the guy from Simple Minds, I think, is plays guitar on it or something. Uh, Chrissy uh, Hyden of The Pretenders, she turned it down, but she offered um, – her husband at the time was from Simple Minds. So she gave it to him, and that's how they recorded it. And that became like – I mean that's like that's a freaking iconic, yeah, and, an that's a, and and people were and people slagging off the uh, the, the the soundtrack saying it's not very good and and Simple Minds they should get away from that you know it, it, it's so funny you look at like period yeah. uh, reviews song and stuff is, is, is a part of our DNA I almost. mean that is literally like the you know that is a huge and then I think in 2015 Molly Ringwald released an album of like jazz music like standards and she cut, she did like a standardy. American songbook version of this. That's on her album. Don't you forget about me? <laughs> it's a little less. Uh, it's a little. It's a little more ballady <laughs> than like swinging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this the album that the soundtrack was released and it and it peaked at number seventeen on the U.S. Char- Billboard two hundred chart. But then the uh, Don't You Forget About Me reached number one on the singles because it was released as a single on the U.S. Hot hundred chart. Which and then you know it's become. Very iconic, like you there said. Was a, there was also there was a he, uh, heavy metal band I was into, and me and my friends were into in high school, called Life of Agony. Now, this is un, unresearched. I'm just, this is going off the top of my head completely. And I think their second album, they did a cover of this, and it was a big, it was a big deal for me and my friends, that album, with the cover of this on that, uh, Life of Agony. Check out, check out that cover. Uh, of uh, Don't Don't You Forget About Me. Uh, and then when they rapped, uh, you know, since the library was a set, they, uh, John Hughes gave everybody pieces of the banister as souvenirs to the cast. Yeah. Um, I always wonder with that big statue in the middle of the library. Henry Moore. But they, but that the, you see Judd Nelson like sits on top of it. Yeah, like how did he get up there? <laughs> yeah, well, that, it's it's. Well, I it's, understand how Judd Nelson got up there, but how did Bender get up there? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really. I say Henry Moore because we're uh, Blake and I went to high uh, high school, went to college, uh, SUNY Purchase. We had it. There was a big Henry Moore is a very famous sculptor who's from Leeds, England, and he did a lot of big stuff. And there was a big piece of his uh, on the giant. Uh, yeah, walkway of, of college where we used to be and where it was positioned at the time when we went there is it was just right in the middle of like yeah. where people like kids would we walk would, around. You kids would sit on it. Yeah, we like, go sit and hang out you know, on the read thing. or 
you know, or just hang out. The shit. And now it's been, it's been since moved, and now it's it's at the front when you drive in. Yeah. So it's, it's still like the symbol of the school, but now it's, it's like, completely it's, inaccessible. It's not in a place where the kids can kind of hang yeah. out by it anymore. Yeah, because it's it's right by where you drive in and out of the of the the, the, the complex. Kind yeah. Of. So it's interesting that it was a Henry Moore sculpture, or it's it's inspired by a yeah, Henry Moore. Yeah, it's not Henry Moore. It's certainly of that style. Yeah. Um, and then, so this movie comes out, we, we said it was shot for, uh, for a million dollars. It comes out, um, in, uh, February 25th, 1985. And, uh, it debuts number three behind Beverly Hills Cop and Witness. And it ends up. Great year. I know. (laughs) Uh, it ends up for it shot for a million dollars. It ends up grossing uh, $45,875,171 domestically. And then uh, internationally, worldwide, it's $51,525,171 box office. So that's pretty huge if you shot it for a million. Uh, and then there's a legacy of it being, you know, Entertainment Weekly ranks it as number one in the 50, 50 best high school movies. It's quintessential 80s. It's all over all kinds of lists. And then in 2000, there was a, a group called the 18s. They released a debut album called the Abbott Generation, which includes they do they did a 1976 cover of uh, Abba's uh, Dancing Queen. Dancing that? Queen. And their music video for it is a parody of... I kind of remember that music video. Yeah, it's a parody of The Breakfast Club, and they had Gleason come back and reprise his role, which is kind of cool, of yeah. being Vernon in it. And then I guess the, the various members of the band are running around, you know, doing crazy stuff. I think stuff. he plays that similar part or reprises it again for... Not another teen movie, one of those yeah. parody movies. Yeah, in the early odds. And he's since passed away, sadly. Uh, but And then he shows up iconically three years later in uh, Die Hard, Johnson & Johnson, no relation. No, he's not John, is he? No, he's not Johnson & Johnson. He's the he's the Johnson & Johnson and Robert Davi and the other guy. Yeah, yeah. He's like the head like sergeant or whatever on the scene. They're like, they're going after the lights. They're going after the lights. Yeah. Yeah. But he, but this, this movie kind of pigeonholed him being that authoritative figure. Who's an idiot, you know, like hence like in Die Hard, he's kind of like a a goof, you know, like makes fun of him. So, uh, and we talked about the additional scenes and then, uh, another thing, which is, I find kind of funny is, um, I guess, um, what's his face? The, the John Cab, Cablos that we said, the janitor. Oh yeah. Kapolos. I imagine it's Greeks. So it's probably like Kapolos. Yeah. If I had to guess, uh, he he was talking about uh, you know he 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 comes on set and he warns the actors about not getting too intense with your roles, and he jokes, "You don't want to have a heart attack like Martin Sheen did doing Apocalypse Now," and he doesn't realize that Emilio <laughs> So Emilio Estevez got really pissed off at him and refused to speak to them, and then when he realized, he said, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry." You know, he felt completely embarrassed, and he, yeah, yeah. And, and it hung with him all these years until he ended up uh, guesting um, years later on the West Wing and Martin Sheen on the West Wing was the president. Then he related the story. Like I felt so bad. I told this story about you and I didn't know Emilio was your son. And you know, Martin Sheen laughed and said, don't worry about it. But it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of weird. It's like, Hey dude, that's his father, man. It seems like Emilio's the one that is like, I don't know, separates himself from this movie a bit. Cause you always see there's like reunions or yeah, but I wonder they why, did a though. couple of years ago. I wish I knew or at the time I didn't go. I don't think I knew about it until after it was over. They had, they screened it at like Lincoln center and I believe they were all there except for Emilio. Really? And it was like the Q and a was like run by Kevin Smith, I think. Oh yeah, you're right. They, I, I did hear about that. Um, 
And then when he died in, in 2010 at the 82nd Academy Awards. Um, oh, John Hughes. John, when John Hughes passed away, they did have um, Ali Sheedy, Anthony Michael Hall, Molly Ringwald, uh, and uh, Judd Nelson appeared on stage along with um, uh, Matthew Broderick and John Cryer, and Macaulay Culkin. Culkin. Yeah, I remember so, that. Yeah, I do remember that too. That was that was pretty nice. But then, of course, I don't know why. Why would Emilio Estevez? I don't know why he wouldn't. Why I don't know. I don't know if it's himself. any distance from the from the film. I mean, it also, was just, just only, from... this is only he he was he did say Elmo's Fire the next which year, which has Ali Sheedy in it. Like, yeah, the following year, Scotler College graduates. But that, and I can't think of anything else. Kind of, you know, he did like the the movie you and I love, Nightmares, Maximum <laughs> Overdrive, yeah. and then he ends up getting into like Young Guns. Yeah, but I'm trying to think of like, is there anything else he did that's Maybe there is the high school that well, you know, he's in the Outsiders. Oh yeah, he is. In the, yeah, he's in the Outsiders. Maybe he, plays, maybe he plays Soda Pop in that. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a clutch part. His part in the Outsiders. Yeah, you know, and that's the same year as in eighty forty five, eighty six, right around you there. Know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's another kind of a brat pack that you have. Everybody, yeah, other Rob movie. Lowe, Patrick Swayze, Tom Cruise, Michael, see uh, Thomas Howell, see Thomas Howell, uh, Tom Waits shows up in it. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of crazy people. Young in that Diane movie. Lane, yeah, gorgeous Diane Lane in that. Uh, that's Ralph another Macchio. Great one. Ralph Macchio. Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. Jeez, everybody. Man, that is a hell, that was a hell of a cast. Uh, Coppola. Coppola, yeah, yeah, he did that. Right and of course, so I think we have to mention, given recent events and, and the way our compact, uh, podcast has been going in recent year, in recent weeks because of it, there's a, it opens with a quote from David Bowie. It does open, which uh, was it Molly Ringwald or Ali Sheedy uh, recommended? Uh, Ali Sheedy suggested the quote, and which it's from the Changes album. Or it's from the song Changes off the 1971 album Hunky Dory. And uh, she suggested it, and he liked it, so he put it in, you know. And as well as uh, little tidbits of useless knowledge, uh, it's Anthony Michael Hall's mom, Mercedes Hall, and his and sister, his sister Mary uh, Christian, who uh, drops them off at the beginning as well, which is kind of funny. And also, I think uh, Molly Ringwald's uh, the car, the Porsche that drops her off, is actually, or maybe it's the BMW, whatever that car is. It's yeah. actually um, uh, John Hughes's in real life at the time. So. Uh, uh, what do you think for uh, for for stars? Oh, I I don't know. It's a very different kind of sleepover movie in terms of uh, you know. I think it's you know in a way I almost felt like we should we we attempted to do labyrinth. It's yeah. kind of a shout out to the girls out there. That, oh, I know. Yeah, that might be interested. And then uh, With the less of less Bowie. than twelve hours after, like twelve hours after we recorded the thing. It was uh, revealed that Bowie died, and it became very much uh, an odd tribute to Bowie. Yeah, a, a very un, un um, intentional. I mean, yeah. we don't even because we didn't know. I think you recorded a disclaimer for it, but it, it, we don't know that he's. We don't even know he's sick when we recorded. I don't no. think the only thing that happened was he he was turning sixty nine. Yeah, he, he had, released he had, Black Star. He had just had a birthday and he released an album, and then uh, I mean, within days of the recording, because we, we referenced in the podcast the way it was supposed to be released, we're like, yeah, he had a birthday a week ago. Good for him. Yeah, yeah. But a new we, album. Out. But we recorded it like two days <laughs> after his birthday, and then he died the next day. That or, night, or was reported that he died the next day. So uh, our attempt at doing like a like a female themed <laughs> movie for the ladies uh, got kind of uh circumvented by unfortunate events so uh i feel like this is another kind of attempt at that although i feel like this movie is less it's definitely less a girl's movie than say 16 candles would be um but for me i for me 
it's uh but I, I think it's my point is I think it's very much a girl sleepover movie. Yeah. I don't think it's as much a guy sleepover movie, but it's an important movie for me, so I, I would give it five buckets of pizza. Yeah. Just because of my history with it, it's important. You know, a, a Saturday night sleepover of making a uh, <laughs> very cheesy rendition of this movie, an homage to this movie, occurred in my life. So I think I need to acknowledge that. What about um, you? I think four, four, four point five. It's great. I mean, it's really good. It's really uh, thought provoking. It's it's really it's very influential and it's very topical. So being it's... someone who had never seen this movie in its entirety, <laughs> or at least from beginning to end, uh, someone who wasn't as uh, you know, uh, educated in the world of the John Hughes style of, of high school movie. You know, it's, well, how was the, I mean, obviously you gave it four stars, so you much a lot, you must have liked it, but I don't know. What, what, how does it make you feel? Did you feel nostalgic at all while you watched well, it? Certainly, I, I, like I'm I said, I'm curious because I don't know, know anybody else that hasn't seen this movie. It's <laughs> uh, uh, entirety. Uh, I, I certainly, you know, for the era and like I said, for like the buildings they were in, you know, yeah, was, yeah. you know, and then as well as, you know, a lot of the, all the issues that they had like about their characters and psyche and the fears and, and, you know, um, uh, tribulations that they were worrying about. That's all. Yeah. It was all very good. And it was dealt in such a way that I thought was very good. And then, like I said, it's even to the point now where I'm at the age where I was sympathizing with the, the first guy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) who empathized, who's like, uh, identifies most with, I didn't say I identified most of them. I could see where he's coming from, and I could see yeah, that, like, yeah. oh, it's it's you know, it's a tough, you know, when you're that age and you look at him as an authoritative figure, and you give him the middle yeah, finger, yeah. and then later on you're like, well, he's just trying to. But then, you know, I think they did. There's a deleted scene they talk about where he was like uh, watching women faculty members using the swimming pool. So there was things, yeah. and certainly them playing him up, he's kind of an idiot with like the vending machines or nothing more. <laughs> he's very funny though. He's so know? he's very good in that part. Yeah, in that movie, especially when he tells me you're supposed to help him move the magazine around. Okay, what he was? <laughs> He's like, "What are you doing with this? What are you doing?" Yeah. Right, and that's almost looks very much like. I mean, I love his suit in it because I think at the time it's supposed to be his suit's supposed to be like you know seventies, but I yeah, think yeah. I think it's awesome. It's so cool. Um, and then other we, earlier titles of the movie was the Lunch Bunch or Library Revolution. Uh, earlier titles for the film, uh, and uh, I loved how um, they say Judd Nelson. That was the, his own clothes he wore to the audition. And that's very much like a friend of ours, Mike Morona, who was in what's what's he in? Uh, I actually was just watching Slackers yesterday. It was on yeah, TV. And that was his out. That's his his what he used to wear to our college Slackers is that's his outfit. So he didn't wear it, none of that stuff. And I think also, what is it 40, 40, 40 days and forty nights? Yeah, he's in yeah. as a bagel boy. That's his outfit too. Those are all his. So yeah, it's like, yeah. So it's, it's funny, funny to I, think. Of, I was just it was just on TV yesterday. I was I watched a little bit of that. Yeah, uh, it's a shame that movie never really caught on because it's pretty it's, funny. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's it's is it. Do you find it, is it um, dated? Yeah, well, you know, it's hard From not to be, you know, it's hard not to be um, for that kind of movie, for like a college or teen yeah. type movie. I, I mean, mean even just, like American Pie, if you go back and watch that, is with, that dated? And yeah, of course, it must yeah. be. You know, obviously there's things about it that aren't, but um, so those movies are so marketed for the time with yeah. like the music that's in it and that's true things like that it's hard even this i mean it's it's very, it's very but this becomes iconic though which is weird i wonder i mean i know american pie is a completely different vehicle because it's a comedy but uh like this to me transcends the 80s and it becomes the you know it's like if you want to f- shoot a fucking rocket into space with 
you know, a time capsule of the 80s. This yeah, may yeah. be, this may represent this genre of teen angst. Sure, sure. You know, so I find a different word. There's not too much, there's not stuff that we have to say is cliche that we have to, okay, you have to just get past or put your, we always talk about putting our nostalgia caps on and not having to worry about stuff. Yeah, yeah. So th- this doesn't really have a lot of that, which I don't know if I can say a lot well, of John I think a lot of, has. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, I think this one less so than any other because it's so... Maybe deals with more small. character. It's more about character. It's more about character. I think in themes that are universal, but it's also very closed. You know, it's only that one location. Yeah. Which, you know, in 1985, a school library didn't look that different in 1995 when we were in high that's, school. That's, yeah, I mean, it, it's very. <laughs> I mean, it was an elaborate library. It's fucking huge, but it's it's interesting. I mean, that, it was know. it was an exaggerated version of what a you know it like we didn't have a giant Henry Moore statue, but you know, just like schools, yeah. the institutionals don't they don't change much because there's no. no budget to like remodel a fucking. That's high why, school. like I said, the hallways and whatever they just look so much like they shot them where I grew. So up I as think well. because of like it being such a small movie in terms of scope and locations and stuff i think it it helps it not get too dated because um, you're not like you don't have a big prom scene or, or like a dancing like in 16 candles where then you're bombarded with them dancing to 80s music sure yeah. there's 80s music in this movie but it doesn't play even though they dance to it in the context of the movie there is like it's diegetic those words we love to use. Yeah. <laughs> um i just feel like it, that's maybe one of the reasons why it's not as dated as say other movies of the time yeah. or high school movies even from 15 years ago and i and uh, i guess also john hughes one of his biggest regrets is him having the breakaway glass in the scene where they're getting high and they shut the door and the glass breaks or whatever he didn't like that i guess looking back but uh, yeah, four four point five stars. I thought I liked it a lot. You know, um, it's certainly very interesting, and I think they they all did solid roles in it. You know, the only thing that I thought weird about was that scene where the janitor and um, and uh, what's his face Vernon are having that heart to heart. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly they're just drinking a six pack, and then they're back to. Yeah, so well, it's like kind of like they inserted that later you on. You can imagine that the oh, I, that I the janitor probably has. A I completely stash believe somewhere. it, but it's just weird that like you know the. You know, for the eight hours, they're hanging out separately doing things, and then they like, hey, come on and have a six-pack, and then yeah, they yeah. have that, and then later on, the gender's back to, like, wiping the floor. So, <laughs> you know, it's almost like they were like, you know, we need to have a scene where there's some exposition yeah, to be told yeah. about Where they don't backstory. seem too much like assholes. Yeah, you know, we need to we need to humanize them a little bit, and also have the janitor humanize the character, the kids, to the, to the, to the principal. This so. Is this our first teen movie? Teen high school oriented movie for Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers? It may be. It may be our first teen... Is it first for first teen? Maybe I mean, I we've done a few comedies, but I don't think any of them were like teen comedies, right? You may be right. This may be the first. This might be the inaugural. We have a lot of firsts for yeah for this, we had this the first year. Western last the last episode. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we had that. Uh, well, I guess it wasn't the first TV movie, but it was the f- big TV movie of the week. The one before that, and then we had the uh, our first uh, was that our first Henson Bowie movie. <laughs> You know? Not in our first David Bowie movie before yeah. that. You know, so, yeah, it's, it's a, this might be paving new ground here because, you know, this is another one. A shout out to all the ladies, the, the female audience uh, listeners. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is great. Good, 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 uh, good stuff here and can't, can't be more highly recommended. Uh, Perfect movie to crack open a bucket of pizza. Yeah. Kind of two liter Mega Joe Cola. Sit yeah. back with your friends and then make a. Uh, 
make a make, make a your homage. Own, make your own homage. It is. A, I, I I will confess it is one of the weirdest homages you could make. You know, I would. You know, you like. Hey, let's do. I uh, do have to admit that it was probably much more instigated by by uh, some of the other people in my in my group of friends than me. But uh, I think it's one of the reasons why I this movie. Even though this movie was not as big for me as the as was for them at that time, it's why that movie is as big as for me now because it has that nostalgic place in my heart of like remembering making a shitty fucking homage fan movie and I, to I, it or or you know watching this movie with my friends and you know loving the song with my friends in the car. Or, and all that stuff. And I think lastly, so walk down memory lane. before we end up, it does have one of our throwbacks. It has a uh, um, a joke with no punchline, which we see a lot. You know, Judd Nelson, it, does, it doesn't have a punchline, and that's very much like, what is it, Halloween, where the guy's telling, <laughs> the, telling story. the story. And yeah. then, you know, right when he's about to tell the punchline, Donald Pleasant's like, well, yeah, hurry up. You know, so that's very interesting. So uh, thanks for listening. Check yeah, this just out. Just imagine on. the amount of destruction they did to the school that that day <laughs> the, what the, the ceiling tile broke oh, Jesus through. I know broke through the glass shattered they, yeah uh, I mean John Nelson's ripping up books and, and mixing up the Dewey Decimal System uh, and then system prior cards. to that he lit the, the, the locker on fire with the flare gun and uh destructive you know, group of kids we're lucky they didn't somehow like turn the sprinklers on and dance <laughs> in the rain and completely ruin the place and then you know fucking the what's his face Vernon the whole time just in his office not noticing it noticing any of it and then god forbid if the next day, with all the with the, with the ceiling asbestos back then, nineteen eighty five, and he's walking around up in the in the you know, those asbestos covered pipes are probably completely uh, uh, you know he's 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 licking asbestos and all that. Uh, although by that point in the sixties, I don't know if they have asbestos in schools. But anyway, but then come to find out if they're like, why are the ceiling tiles broken on? Then were you guys drinking on the job? He could have lost his job. You know, like the, Monday morning, he could have. He may no longer have been the assistant principal. Uh, so Monday morning, I would love to see what happens Monday. Yeah, I are think a lot of people. Still friends, the, you know, do people get in trouble for the destruction? Of the we'll have to do a roundtable with all of them, with all the actors, get them all together, and ask them for, where, for where do they over. Yeah, let's 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 have them give them a moment to get back into their roles and what what happened to your character? <laughs> yeah, were you guys? Did you guys marry? And that's another th- extension of one of the deleted scenes. They talk about someone gives um, uh, examples of uh, of where he thinks. They're going to be in ten years or so. Uh, you know, uh, Carl predicts where the f- the five kids will be in thirty years. Bender will have killed himself. Claire would have had two boob jobs and a facelift. Brian would have become very successful but die of a heart attack due to the stresses of a high paying job. Allison would be a great poet, but no one would care. And Andrew would marry a gorgeous airline stewardess who would become fat after having kids. So that that was what that could be what happened. Yeah, hope not. But I was right about Judd uh, taking. <laughs> Two barrels of a, of, a, of a shotgun in his mouth. Yeah. So please check us out on uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, we're on Pod. We're on uh, Facebook. We're on uh, Poddroid. We're on iTunes. We're on I'm Twitter. Just discovering that we're other ones. Too, I know. They keep on popping up. People yeah. are taking it. I saw the one with some foreign website on, carries the show. We're on Stitcher. We're on Player FM. You can, if you Google us, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, you'll find us. Our direct uh, site is SaturdaySleepovers.podwits.com. We Always like to encourage people who listen to the podcast to check out the website because we like to give a little extras and stuff for each podcast. If I had the movie, 
If I had the thing, oh, you'd add, you'd add it as an would, extra. We would put that as, as well, if you could find it and copy it. To, as a bear, as embarrassing as it would be, that be your, we would uh, post the link and with a disclaimer. <laughs> this is this is done as don't a parody. think less of me. Yeah, uh, and check us out there. Check us out on. We have a Facebook page. Facebook uh, page. Like the Facebook page if you can. Uh, check us out on Twitter. Uh, share, like, retweet us on Twitter. Message us on the Let's Facebook. Get the word plays. out, people, please. Yeah, we like getting. It's getting out there. It's good. Let's make it not like that they're not getting. I did progress. (laughs) I think everyone's doing a great job with everything. Our listeners are awesome. We have great listeners. The the, the audience is is growing. Yeah, and send us recommendations. We're getting getting the recommendations. We We don't get to them as much as I'm sure... But we have done a couple. I We've mean, done you know, a few. We have plans to do more. It's just as tough yeah. as we say. So many tapes, so little time. <laughs> so many movies that are stopped. Really at VHS that. We movies. only do it twice a month, basically. Yeah. yeah, bi-weekly, it just gets terrible because we have real jobs, which stinks. You know, we got we to gotta sleep over. Yeah, it's, it's hard for, it's hard. for, you know how for hard grown adults to have a sleepover. <laughs> to have guys in their mid-30s get yeah. together for a sleepover every two weeks. And then we have to watch a movie, <laughs> and then it's not like we're just hanging out and shooting the shit and going to a diner. We're actually having to, to have homework to do and... It's all kinds of stuff, but it's fun. We're not we're not in any no, way, no, uh, of course, knocking it. But so please check us out, like us, tell friends. Um, you can interact with us. We're available for parties. You know, all kinds of stuff. We gotta hopefully. What what's the number of listeners we'll have to get to before you think we can host like a Saturday night movie sleepover live? Oh, I don't know because that's also a matter of them getting to the venue. You know, like getting to like my basement. <laughs> You know, I mean, but because I mean, we if they're all over the country, we ran out of venue. It, it's uh, it, it's one thing if we're like you know people like us, but then they have Get like to, a movie theater. Ran out of movie theater, for and a everyone night. brings their sleeping bags, and we all sit and we watch yeah. movies, and, and then we, we shoot just, the shit about it. Yeah, and then it was like, what movie do we? It's only these questions that only God can answer. What all movies right, do well, we we'll do? Think about it. Oh my gosh, it gets the anxiety of it all. Oh Jesus, the <laughs> complexities in this. What what is the f- movie you do in that kind of? A, what are the expectations of the audience? Are they going to want to ask questions? Are we even going to be able to do a, a podcast? Does it become just become people open do discussion? live? So. Oh, I know. Yeah, you're right. They ran off that John Lovitz theater and. A lot of the smodcasts yeah, we'll get done there. We'll go do one at the John Lovitz Theater. Yeah. And we'll get the five people Once from we the... can break a 700 listeners. <laughs> yeah. We'll, once we... Uh... If we could get all 700 listeners to the theater, that would be one thing. But yeah. We're scattered. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get the three people in California to listen to us <laughs> to come. You know? Maybe we should start low and we'll just do like off, off, off Broadway we'll community the theater. Yeah. We'll... we'll I can... <laughs> At the, the Elks Lodge in the bottom of the community center. <laughs> the, Col- the Knights of Columbus. Yeah, at the bottom of the Knights of or, or in the church basement, you know, where they, they have the craft bazaar. We'll, we'll do a little thing, you know, to make sure that PA's working. <laughs> can, everyone, can everyone hear us? Sure, Mike. Yeah, and then they're all reverb. It's too loud. So check us out. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks. And uh, it's always exciting. And uh, I guess that's it. Later. Later.